0: Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for LikeVille comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in LikeVille, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Support for the podcast also comes from Els's. Elses is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Morale. Also sponsoring the podcast is Goodmix. Goodmix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Goodmix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode.
1: Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking again with my friend and fellow Montrealer, Jason McDonald. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about Montreal, our beloved city. Uh, We're both two homeboys here, and we're talking about uh, Montreal's present, past, and future. Welcome, Jason.
2: Hey, John. How you doing? So
1: you wrote this fantastic article about Montreal, which uh, will be going live on the Likeville website uh, tonight and in, in conjunction with, uh, with our conversation. So what are your thoughts on where Montreal is, where it's been, where it's going? Well,
2: yeah, uh, I would say it's in a pretty good place in the last few years, you know, uh, I pointed that out in one of the shorter paragraphs in the article about how, you know, uh, the end of the 20th century was a bit of a difficult time for the city that, uh, you know, there was a transition period there from starting probably in the maybe the late 80s, early 90s and up into the early 2000s, maybe a decade, a decade and a half. Over the past decade, I get a much more positive sense. That's a very general review. I don't know. Well, what, understand? I mean,
1: growing up here, like, you know, you, you and I are about, about the same age. I mean, what it, what are the changes that you've noticed? Cause I've noticed, I mean, for me, the biggest thing was when I was, when I was a kid growing up here, I felt like, I felt like I'd showed up to the party, like after it was over. And, like, all the good booze was left. It was, like, nothing but, like, a couple of wine coolers in the fridge. And everything was, like, a mess. And there's cigarette butts everywhere. And, like, people puked all over the floor. And, like, I felt like I'd showed up late to the party. And so everybody, you know, all the baby boomers and the older people were just talking to me, like, oh, the glory days have passed. Oh, Expo was so amazing. The 60s were so amazing here. 50s even were. And so I was constantly hearing all these stories. And, and I was growing up. I almost felt like, you know, living in, in the Roman Empire after it fell, you know, and like everything's falling apart and all the stores are boarded up uh, on Wellington Street and, and Notre Dame and all these old streets that used to be as bustling as as Saint-Laurent and Saint-Catherine Street were now like in ruins. And, you know, you had in many neighborhoods like one third of the adult population were out of work and it just seemed like a mess, right? And then suddenly it started getting better and started getting better. And so for me now, this is like the best Montreal's ever been in my life at 47. Like I've never seen it better than this, but you know, so I mean, what is your sort of experience of the the change over time?
2: Well, first of all, I want to thank you for that, um, you know, analogy of the party, because I heard you say that in a, in a podcast. And I was like, that is exactly how I felt particularly in the 90s, you know, when it was kind of like dirty and grimy and there was, uh, you know, just all these kinds of, you know, crime was higher. So it's hard. I think there's two things going on. One is there's this sort of peak of time that I point out in the article. I, I put it from 1967 to 1976. You know, you have this period. It's just under a decade that you can frame. And you've got the lead-up to Expo 67, building the metro, modernization of Montreal, all all this kind of stuff. Then you have Place Ville-Marie, I point out, you know, the rotating light. It's a complete changing of the city from its older, more, um, say, smaller, let's say, you know, turning it into this big, you know, city and and then you have and then in 76 um the PQ get elected now i don't know how far you you want to go into the politics cuz i i do want to sure, cover some of that a little it, yeah. bit but i don't want to go too much into it one of my objectives with the article was not to be you know not to go into this narrative about oh yeah you know the PQ got in and that's the end of us and everything went to toronto and all that cuz that's an easy trap to fall in because yeah you know Toronto turns into this massive metropolis and Montreal lags behind. That's, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean. In any case, I think there's also um, in the 60s and 70s, you had rising crime too, which may play into what you were just saying, right? So you have this period. This is true. And Montreal follows a track. I didn't put this in the article. It's occurring to me now. Similar to Detroit and Los Angeles in the building of the auto routes. It was very much like. You know, they ripped up the streetcar tracks and they were like, uh, yeah, we're going to have, everyone's going to drive around with built the Metropolitan and the, you know, the DeCary Expressway and all this stuff. And there were way more, I don't know if you know this, there were way more auto routes planned. There was one that was, they were going to build a tunnel under Mount Royal that was going to come out at Rachel Street and then extend over. (laughs) And they were going to continue the 19 down from Laval if you, because the 19 is actually a very short little Autoroute and Laval, and and when you get into Montreal, it just turns into this weird street where there's like a—it's sort of this empty space until you get down to the Metropolitan. They were going to continue right down to the Jacques Cartier Bridge, building this kind of grid, right? So you have, you know, anyway. And I think that that tracks with a lot of American cities that you know, like Los Angeles, Detroit, are like this, right? Um, And to a certain extent, New York. Yeah, we're going to be car, car, car. You know, this kind of thing. And then, you know, then crime rose. People moved to the suburbs. So Montreal, I see as kind of like a milder version of that. You have this moving out to the suburbs and in the downtown that you and I remember from the 80s, you know, Mm St. Lawrence and St. Catherine being, you know, really run down. So it's hard for me to disentangle those two things from my thesis, right? Because I didn't include the stuff about the rising crime and all that stuff Mm -hmm. as well. That's a separate thing that I didn't cover. But basically the glory period ends in 76 and then you get, and there's still people today uh, that think that there was this sort of glorious peak in this, in the, you know, which there was in some senses, it was the, you know, it was the biggest city in Canada, you know um, which it had been for a very long time, but then there was this peak of modernization with that. Right. So it was kind of all the things coming together, but I've always asked myself the question, How could we have continued? How could Canada have continued with that flag, right, the old flag? Because I pointed this out in the article. In 1965, um, all you have to do, anyone listening to this, is Google Red Ensign, right? And then just look at that and then look at our modern flag, right? You look at those two things. And just the image of having a Union Jack on the flag, that's kind of like an encapsulation of how Canada was – you know, incorporated as a nation. It was a independent country with protection from its former colonial, from our former colonial masters, right? And, um, you know, so in that incarnation, we had very close ties to the British, and there was, I've always had this theory that for French Canadians, there was sort of a quid pro quo, Right. Uh, we give you protection from the United States, meaning we, meaning the British, you know, and uh, so you'll have protection if there's an American attack. You go over there and go to your Catholic schools and just whatever, have your French stuff. We don't really care that much about that, and you know, and uh, and that worked for the you know for the colonial period, and then the and then the peak of the British Empire. In the fifties, United Kingdom was exhausted from fighting these grueling world wars with Germany and everything. And the British Empire falls apart all over the world, right? So you have, you know, Jamaican independence and, uh, you know, India and all these places. And we were already independent, but this led to, I think, a crisis of identity, kind of like, what are we going to be now? And that opened the door for separatist sentiment that had always existed to kind of flourish. You know, there's no more, as I state in the article, no more colonial masters in London to, you know, stamp you down. So I think that that was the start of it. I point out in the article was the, the change of the flag. Um, so I've, just to close the thought, I, what do you, I mean, what could we have done at that moment? Like could could Montreal have continued to be the city that all these people sort of look back at nostalgically? My mother told me, for just to give you a little anecdote, she came here from the United Kingdom in the fifties, and she's told me many. That's right, my mom too. Really, came from yeah. Manchester, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. She was born in Manchester. Wow. Right?
2: My mother near Manchester, yeah, yeah. And uh, she was a kid. She came over here, and um, and one of the things she told me which I didn't put in the article or probably should, was that she she lived in Côte and, you know, Jewish. And uh, she said that, yeah, you know, we knew there were French Canadians, that they, they, they existed in Montreal. We could hear sometimes people speaking French, but she said, I always thought they were a minority. And, you know, everything was in English. You go downtown, uh, everything. Went, and um, it's occurring to me now, I was reading an article today by... Uh, Someone who you're probably familiar with, Mathieu Boccote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. And oh I, wonder, my God. I, I wonder. This is one of these things yeah. I wanted to get into a little bit was the mm. modern state because there's this constant claim that Montreal is getting more and more English. And whenever I, I hear that, I always think, is it true? Because my mom told me that the place used to be way more English. This, but that's a really long time ago. So, in any case, it 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 struck it strikes me that. Um, I don't think that Quebec and Montreal could have continued without the separatist sentiment becoming much more ferocious, basically. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it rose up pretty quickly through the sixties and into the seventies with two referendums, 80 and 95. And But my, my thesis in the article is that there was a constant, um, uh, you know, uh, appeasement to saying to people like, you know, look, Canada, Canada's a good country. And I think the first instance of that was the flag, right? Saying like, look, we're flexible enough to accommodate to, you know, to uh, to the minority population, in this case being French Canadians.
1: Yeah. You know. Well, I think there's, you know, in response to what you said, there's two things. Just First of all, what happened with the rise of like Québécois nationalism was part of a broader movement that was happening all over the world. Uh, from roughly the late nineteenth century up until kind of i guess maybe like the end of the the 20th century, which is you had all over the place you you had this common pattern where the cities would be like would would be dominated to a large extent by some sort of minority group, so it in much of kind of eastern Europe. It would have been the Germans, right? You had like German minorities who were the merchants, the traders. They had all the networks uh, throughout most of Southeast Asia. It would have been like ha- uh, people who were ethnically Han Chinese. Uh, in a lot of like East Africa, it was like South Asians, like Hindu South Asians. It was uh, in a bunch of places. It was it was Jews in a bunch of places. It was uh, you had so you had like minority groups in all these areas that. W- in a city, right? So, I mean, one example, classic example, is if you look at, uh, like, one of the most famous German poets, you know, of all time, Rainer Maria Rilke. Rilke was not, didn't live in Germany. He lived, uh, you know, he lived, right, in a town that was surrounded by, like, Slovaks and Czechs and things like that, right? So there were these German kind of minorities in towns, all kind of part of the old Habsburg Empire and stuff like that. And what happened is you had this rise of ethnic nationalism that happened and suddenly all the hinterland decided we want to take over the cities. And this happened in sometimes incredibly violently. Uh, you know, and generally speaking, I, I can't think of I can't think of I'm sure maybe it exists, but I, I can't think of one example where this was good for the place. Like, the places that kicked out all the Indians in Africa, it didn't go well for them. The places that kicked out the Nigerians that were doing all the trade and business, it didn't go well for those African countries. The places that kicked out the Han Chinese, they didn't do well. Kicked out the Jews, the Germans. And the same thing happened here. Like, so the English and the the Yiddish-speaking Jews were running a lot of the, the business and stuff like that. And there was an attempt to kind of, like we want to take over like you know Montreal like and it was sort of like a kind of a, a rev- you know return of the jedi or like the empire strikes back it was like the hinterland trying to conquer the cities and that that was i think what you see with the you know with the pq winning in 76 was that was just one chapter in a much larger story that's much bigger than here it was happening everywhere but what's happening now is i think uh we're seeing kind of, to some extent, a decline of the nation-state, of the importance of the nation-state, and we're seeing, like, a rise of cities. So cities are just, like, where the action is all over the world now. So if you look at where a nation-state like Canada or the United States or many other ones, when they were founded the vast majority of the population were living in the rural areas and they were farmers and living in small towns. Cities only had like 10, 15% of the population and they were so, but, but now it's like the majority of the population lives in city centers So it's not, it used to be the case that like the cities were very much dependent on like the rural areas. It's not like that now. The rural areas are heavily, heavily subsidized and dependent on the cities, right? But we've set up these political systems. uh, And it's not just like the nation state, like Canada, the United States, it's also just the states and the provinces. Like the, you know, New York City keeps the lights on for New York State. But they get, like, treated terribly, right, up, you know, in Albany. Like, Montreal completely pays the bills for Quebec. Like, we provide the vast majority of the tax base for this province. This province would die in a second if we were, like, swallowed up by, like, an earthquake or something. Like, they – but the power is in Quebec City. And if you go to – you know, I've had this experience numerous times where you go to, like, these small towns in rural Quebec – and the roads are are beautiful and new. The buildings are nice. The schools look great. And I just think Montreal paid for that. Montreal paid for that. Montreal paid for that. Montreal paid for that. And meanwhile, in Montreal, our infrastructure is crumbling because our mayor has to go hat in hand begging, "Can we please can I have some more?" Like going and begging for money that we put in their pocket. Like it's just it's infuriating. And the same thing is going on in Ontario. You know Toronto gets like shit on all the time by Ontario, and Toronto keeps the lights on for Ontario. And it's the same thing everywhere, right? So what is going to, what is already happening, is you're you're going to have uh, increasingly city people are going to start flexing their muscles and demanding more uh, independence from both uh, nation states and the states and provinces that they're in. It's already happening. And so I think that's going to benefit Montreal. The other thing, which is just really, really crazy to contemplate, is that if you go back to like the early 50s, there were a lot of people who thought that Montreal was going to overtake New York as the financial capital of North America. It was like we had like so much money and so much power here and lots of head offices and lots of stuff happening here. That changed for a number of reasons. But I think that might change back in the near future, because, uh, you know, Trump basically blocked the building of the seawall outside of New York City. And that still has people in New York like we, we have a lot of friends in New Yorkers. And they're just completely shocked that this happened and that Biden hasn't reinstated it. Nobody has. And Cuomo, like, had his whole scandal, so he wasn't able to fix it. But if... New York gets another Hurricane Katrina type, not Katrina, Sandy, like event, which according to all the climate change models, you're going to get those big storms much more often. And they don't, they're not adequately protected. Like Manhattan, this is like 80% of global like trade and like financial transactions happen in New York. It's like the financial capital of the planet. And it is completely, like, naked and exposed to another massive hurricane. And a massive hurricane like that uh, would render much of Manhattan underwater and, like, unusable. And so I think it's really sad, but I think because of climate change, Montreal is suddenly going to be a a very kind of stable and attractive place for people to, to come. Like, Stephen Marsh, last time he was here... Uh, which was a couple months ago, we're at Elsis and he he said he was having a really good time with his wife and kids and he said, I actually think I should move here. He's like, This is so much better than Toronto. He's not he's from Toronto. Hey no, he's from Alberta. But, no, but he but he lived in he's from Alberta, but he lived in New York for quite a while and he lives in Toronto now. But he's he he finds Toronto like really annoying and he said like he said, you know, the thing with <clears throat> Toronto is It's one of those cities, and the thing is, is, like, a lot of cities are like this today. It's one of those cities where you get the sense that, like, most of the people you meet and you talk to, they're one promotion or opportunity away from leaving. Like, they don't really have any loyalty to that place. Like, if they got, like, a good uh, job opportunity or a business opportunity or something, they'd move in a heartbeat. They don't really – it's like – Convenient. There's no loyalty it there's no uh, there's no people place, yeah something like that there's no sense of place there's they right well Montreal has that yeah. Montreal is very grounded yeah it's very grounded, and i i 've had this theory for a long time, I think the places i 've been to that are real cities in the world, places like Singapore, you know places like new york uh, these are places where you have a critical mass of people living there. Who think it's the best place in the world? Of course, they're all wrong, right? Like, so it's a delusion, well, but it's can't a all useful be right delusion. In the
2: world, right? Yeah, yes.
1: I mean, <laughs> but it's a useful delusion. It's like they believe it's like you know Lake Wobegon, right? Where the women are strong, the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. You know, it's like yeah. if you part of like what loyalty is is a certain kind of delusion about how you know amazing your place, your people are, your tradition, your religion, your whatever. Uh, and I think it's just kind of a necessary thing. And you don't really have that in, in a place like Toronto, but you do have that in Montreal. So I think, you know, as as the United States, you know, descends into chaos, uh, we may, you know, and I, I say this with a heavy heart, I'm not happy about it. I love the United States and I love New York, but I think we may benefit heavily from the crazy dysfunction to the south of us. And we might be like a stable place for capital and people to to move. I mean, already the video game industry and software, lots of them are coming here uh, and have been coming here for a while. And the reason that they come here is because we have a stable population of people with like highly skilled people. Like, yeah, you know, this, like for instance, this guy that uh owns the in the condo that that we have like the the top floor is owned by this guy. And he's like in his late 20s and he is making like crazy amounts of money. All he does is he does explosions in movies and TV shows. He does like the he does uh like graphics like explosions and things like that. He took a Sejep course, took like a 3-year program out in like uh, uh, like and like he And he basically learned these skills, and at the age of, of, you know, 23, 24, was making, like, 100 grand a year, like, doing, like, this stuff. And so these tech companies have moved here because you have a stable population of highly skilled people who aren't going to leave. And this is, like, for a lot of companies, this is increasingly, like, a big draw is – because employee turnover is incredibly expensive, it's like there's been lots of articles about this in the Wall Street Journal and Fortune Magazine and stuff like that. They, it's very expensive to have to replace people and hire new people and all this stuff. So if you can go to a place where there's a bunch of people who aren't going to move, that's great. Right? It that's value. like it, it adds value. So I, I think actually Montreal's future is going to be very, very bright. We're, we're far away from sea level. Yeah. Which means we, we're not going to be destroyed by rising sea sea level, which is is going is happening and is going to like a lot of the major trading cities in the world are going to be mostly underwater. Mm. You know, London, New York, all these places—they're going to be really screwed. Yeah. We're high enough that we're safe, and we're north enough that we're not going to have like I mean, like a lot Western, of Greece yeah. and Italy and and Spain are being turned to like Sahara. They're turning it to they they're having like multiple days of fifty degrees Celsius mm. and they're they're really in a lot of trouble. You know? So I think yeah. we might end up, you I, know
2: Well first of all I, I share your general optimism with for Montreal. I don't necessarily think I mean the I'm not sure first of all the climate change thing you know let's say it were to play out that way just to give it a you know devil's advocate so you know everything rises up you know that would you know that would affect say new york and cities along the coast in europe but it wouldn't affect toronto so if you think about the canadian dynamic i'm not sure how much that would um the other thing just about the I mean, even the most disastrous scenarios, I mean, you know, the Dutch have been living underwater for centuries. I I don't necessarily think that just because they don't have a seawall that New York, that all the capital is going to flow. That's just my personal view. I don't see how that would necessarily connect. And I I also could see New Yorkers uh, rallying pretty quickly if those changes started to occur with more frequency. Um, I have a little anecdote. My my wife's brother was in New York for the hurricane, that big one you were talking Sandy, about. Sandy, yeah. He was born in New York. He grew up in the Dominican Republic, and then he went back. And because he'd grown up in the in the DR where they get cyclones, he was like, oh, yeah, there's a storm coming. So he bought a bunch of water. He went into his place and everything. He was in there with all this stuff. And he said, all my friends, these New Yorkers have never seen a real storm before. They're all out in the streets walking around. <laughs> Right? It's like, no, you don't do that. When there's a storm, you go inside, you tie everything down, you hope your roof doesn't get blown off and you hunker down for however long it takes. But I did want to go back to the thing about the cities and the country. Um, I wanted to push back a little bit there because this is sort of a thing we hear a lot, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, blue states in the United States may are 70% of the economic value so there's a sort of an extrapolation there that you know that the other states are not at they only adding 30% so therefore <clears throat> sort of a continuous process but it's kind of like when people say you know in any organization you know 10% of the workforce are doing 90 80% of the work you know you hear these the 80 20 rule Is Yeah, 80 yeah, 20 right so it's sort of like you yeah. know 20% 20% of, any,
1: of people do 80% of the work yeah. which
2: You know, I remember when I I first heard that years ago, and then I I
1: sort of, you know, observing
2: in the world, I thought that looks like it's probably true. But as I thought about it more deeply, the the 20% who are doing 80% of the work, if the 80% were to just stop doing anything or die, that 20% would hardly be able to do anything. Like, if if you just think about it, they, they still need to delegate things that are less interesting to do that have less value down to the other 80% and all this, you know. So the, the 20% who are doing, and you could say the, the, you know, the whatever percentage of blue states that are doing 70%, you, one wonders if there's a similar relationship going on there between, and that we shouldn't be too, um, this would apply for, again, Montreal versus the rest of Quebec. What about all that hydropower? You know that's coming down from the north, right? That's coming from a part of the the province where hardly anybody lives, and it has this enormous economic value for us. If we were some sort of a city state, and we didn't have, say, "quote unquote" free trade with the north, which we do because we're in the same political structure here that might be a real problem for us. We might be kind of beholden to them the same way the Germans are beholden to, to, to Russia for energy because they got rid of all their nuclear, right? So I'm not, I, I'm not sure that I buy that idea that just because Montreal and Toronto and New York, and they do, we do generate all that economic activity. I mean, I'm not disputing that as a factual matter. I just think the way that things are integrated together Are more complicated, and another thing, I mean, to complain about the roads in Montreal, I I love doing that. I drive around, I you know, I get driving over potholes, and I'm you know screaming expletives in my you know in my car at that. And what's going on there? Well, is that because we have to go cap in hand to Quebec, maybe? Is a lot of it to do with corruption and stuff getting siphoned off? I think that's probably a big factor, too, right? Oh, the uh, corruption is, a, is definitely is problem. definitely a problem. I mean, it's right? definitely, yeah. So I, I'm not sh- – I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the roads are the way they are. Do they have mafia and, and I don't know uh, – or some place, probably not as much. I'm guessing, you know, it's a different kind of a place. I, I
1: wouldn't... They actually ask, have know. more. They actually have more. But the, the big problem... Italian? The big and, problem... I mean, no, if, different kinds of corruption. It cor- doesn't have to be, like, Italian. But is it? No, but... There's, it's, there's organized crime yeah. all over. I mean, the, the big, mm-hmm. I think, and this is, you know, for you as, like, a libertarian, this is, like, a real feather in your cap, you know, like, score for you guys, uh, <laughs> is, you know, the main problem with the corruption in Quebec is that you have these uh, protectionist policies where they said, okay, we want to only give contracts to like, you can only bid on, on, you know, these road contracts and these construction contracts if you are a Quebec company. And because of that, it means that there's a limited number of companies in Quebec that that can apply and it makes collusion and corruption and really easy and that was proven easy. in the yeah, commission the it, was I mean, very, it was very very much proven yeah, yeah. that like the root of the problem <laughs> yeah. is that these protectionist policies like you, they kind of like they made sense in terms of like within their logic it's like oh we want to like support our own businesses and stuff like that that makes perfect sense but the problem with that is that there's only a certain number of them. So it's very easy for them to get together and collude and price fix. Whereas if you were to just say, okay, let's like open it up to anybody who's a Canadian company. Well, then if, if they did that, it would be very easy for a for company Canadian from Alberta to, to or a company no. to – No, that would be I'm really kidding. hard. Yeah. Like <laughs> they would be able to come in and just undercut kidding. those companies, yeah. right? And I think it's, I think it's embarrassing – you know, as a as a Montrealer and as a Quebecer, I think it's embarrassing that the new Champlain Bridge had to be built by an American company because yeah, they didn't trust any Quebec company to do it. I mean, <laughs> that I found that so embarrassing. I mean, I remember uh, a buddy of mine doesn't oh, uh, say Lavalin, right? Uh, oh, yeah, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I I remember like the buddy of mine. He works high up in the Canadian government now. But he uh, first was working for the diplomatic corps, and he spent a bunch of time, like, in Nigeria, and he had all these, like, crazy experiences. He was, he was in a, a number of different posts in Africa. And he said, you know, one thing that's really crazy is, like, in a place like Nigeria, anybody who has money who's Nigerian, they never hire a Nigerian company to build their McMansion or to build their like you know their their office park or something like that. They hired German engineering firms. They ship them down to Nigeria because they don't trust anybody in Nigeria to actually like not cut corners like crazy and like skimp on things and not build according to code and to like you know to just you know rob them blind. Like they they ship in like Germans to do their construction projects. And I remember when I heard that the Champlain Bridge, the new one, was going to be built by an American company. I thought that is so embarrassing. Like, why is it that like our companies are so fucking corrupt that like we have to, we can't trust them to build an iconic it's a good thing?
2: To 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 at least, I mean, just in terms of the psychology, the dominance psychology. If you want to deal with a, with some, you know, just I don't know, for lack of a better word, recalcitrant as you. Set an example, so you effectively the government could have been setting, sending a signal to the local companies if you know next time we have a contract, then if your bids are you know we might go to the Americans or somebody else like you know maybe that 's something they 're trying to do i 'm not sure they 're trying to outsource everything because that would probably not be but i don 't know i don 't know yeah. much about that you well know, i mean you know. i, I
1: don 't know I was talking to like my, my our downstairs neighbors they're from they 're here from Bangladesh and like They are in, well, they are in Bangladesh. They're a really big deal. They run like a major chain of um, sweet shops. Like uh, they make like pastries and and things like that. They have like a whole chain of them and it's, it's really big all over like South Asia and they, they're part of that family. And they, they basically were saying like, yeah, we're here because, um, you know, we want to establish roots in places outside of there because uh, you know, we, have seen all the models uh, Bangladesh. This is a country of like a couple hundred million people that is going to be mostly underwater. Like soon they already are having bigger and bigger storms. The monsoons are slowing down and, and coming later or not coming at all. They are in, you know, we are going to have in the near future, we're going to have huge numbers of climate refugees and that's going to have a destabilizing effect on a lot of places. And so, I think that's going to be very tragic and horrible. And I'm not like in any way happy about that. However, from the perspective of like a Montreal or Toronto, too, you're right. Toronto is going to benefit from all this stuff, too. There are going to be places like uh, Gwen Dyer uh, Dyer Dyer was was talking about. He predicted this this in his book, Climate Wars. Yeah, like 20 years ago. 20 years ago. It was going to
2: happen five years after. And it's still. I don't know. You know, he's. Yeah, I mean, well, in climate wars, a, he. I remember hearing that he did a special on the CBC, and I was like, oh my God. And then a few years later, I was scratching my head, like, where are these millions of people? There was the refugee crisis in 2015, but that was a very different thing. That was not because of a climate thing. No. That was because of a signal sent by Angela Merkel saying, basically, Europe is open if you can get in now. And what I see that as as a rise in wealth in the third world among people who are in sort of the middle right so when when they were in places like the sudan and afghanistan and other countries that are poor that surround europe most of the you know that are poorer if you were someone who was a young person who had you know just could scrape together you know 5 or 10,000 American dollars which would be enough money to get you to the frontiers of Europe on using coyote smugglers or whatever they're called and you hear a signal like that basically it's like a, a sign outside a store saying sale on now okay, get in you know everything 90% off and that's what Angela Merkel did there's a, I don't know if you've read Douglas Murray's book sure he outlines yeah lines that you know yeah. and so that and so when when I hear these things about climate refugees I don't really know how to incorporate them for a couple of reasons. There's other reasons why refugees might move, so I'm not sure if that. And the other thing is again, if it really does become an emergency, then, you know, the Dutch have been doing this for hundreds of years. I, you know, I
1: just, you know, have, you, know, have you by any chance you read, know, uh,
2: send the, send the Dutch engineers to Bangladesh yeah. <laughs> and figure out a way to deal with it. I don't know. Like it's, I just don't know, or maybe move inland. There's lots of land in Asia for people to migrate to as well. I mean, even in the, in the worst case, Gwyn Dyer scenarios, I don't see how it destabilizes the world because if you were to, you know, I heard the statistic once about how if you were to have every human being standing, you know, six feet apart, I'm holding my arms out right now. <laughs> we don't have any cameras in here, but, you know, the, the entire planet would be about the size of Jacksonville, Florida, right? So that, you know, and and there, there's like, if, if the entire density of the world were like Manhattan, it would be, I think it's Denmark. The entire planet could live in Denmark, right? So... I just – I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Also, the climate models – I really didn't want to get into this, but you brought it up. I might as well yeah. talk about it. The climate models also show more changes in polar areas than in um, – like the, 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 the equatorial areas change the least in terms of the temperatures, right? Because they, they will go up slightly. It's more in the cooler areas that will get warmer, Which is – will account for the difference, which means hot countries where many of these refugees might come from won't change that much, right? Now that, you know, there's – but again, I I did want to return to your your thing about the minorities and the cities um, because that was something that there is a few things that um, pertain to because – In the earlier era of Montreal, we had a lot of immigration coming in from, uh, you know, mostly from the United Kingdom and from other countries. And so we had this very cosmopolitan uh, mix of people that was a different kind of cosmopolitan mix from the one we have today. But we also had um, a lot of, you know, there was urbanization going on. This was true everywhere in the world. You know, when you mentioned that Canada was uh, founded, there was eighty percent or seventy five percent lived on farms. I mean, that's that was the case everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. right? So um the urbanization occurred and you know, at that period a lot of French Canadians went to the United States. It was a very high birth rate, but a lot came here to the city too, right? So you had this kind of um, and this is something I see when I hear Buck Cote talking about, you know, is is that when you have people coming in from the hinterland, too, into the big city, you'd have that anywhere in North America. You have a kind of culture shock, right, of people. I had a student once who came here from Ile Madeleine, and she went through the most intense culture shock that I've ever seen she couldn't handle it she had to leave in the middle of the session she started having this you know panic and I have a theory that if you come here from Morocco or you know Venezuela or Russia or some country you know the sudan or haiti or something you kind of know you're going to a totally different place right you think oh you know it's everything's totally different in that country and you you kind of get yourself mentally prepared if you're from a small town in quebec you think well i'm going to montreal you know and then you show up there and it's completely different um i think that the language stuff aggravates that i mean i talked about this in the article how um you know, many cities in the world, well, take American cities, will have um, different languages that cohabitate. You know, uh, New York, I, I pointed out how has a preponderance of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. Uh, and so you have New York is also a kind of a bilingual city, right? My wife's aunt lived in New York for 40 or 50 years. She's Dominican, And I've never had a conversation with her in English. I'm not even sure if she could speak English. And she had all her doctors, and she worked in factories, and she, you know... So New York, I remember when I first went to New York.
1: She New York. only she only speaks in in French, Spanish, Spanish. Spanish, Spanish. Yeah, she's Dominican. Yeah.
2: So uh, and and in New York, where where they where my wife's people are in Washington Heights, I mean, everybody around there speaks Spanish pretty much in the Heights. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! So you so know, good. it's it's very and and but there's w- even
1: pockets like my wife's uh, grandmother lived in this little pocket in Massachusetts of Finnish a Finnish community. She she had lived... When I met her grandmother, her grandmother had been living in the United States for half a century. She didn't speak any English. Yeah. <laughs> she spoke just Finnish. Yeah. Because she was, she was a housewife with a... You know, had like tons of kids. But there was a little pocket of this immigrant community and they had like their own shops, cafes, churches, uh, community centers. And so you could live your whole life just in in finnish right and there's places there's pockets in montreal like where saint leonard and stuff like that and parts of la salle even where you'll find people who like live their italian their whole life in italian (laughs) whole life in greek whole life in like spanish or something else you know yeah
2: i mean that's something i I wanted to get to about that is that new york yeah i mean that you can have uh multi you know multi you know bilingual Communities that exist for many New Yorkers are bilingual, for, you know, uh, by by that way, you know. Um, but there's there's sort of a difference in in, in the in the Canadian context in Montreal and perhaps in Ottawa, but more in Montreal. In the, the you know, immigrants come into this country and they're they're like, you know, they they really want to attach. It's a new country, and they come in and you know. And I saw my wife going through this and and then they, they you know it's, it, there's these two communities that have these sort of competing national identity myths that you, they, you see it's not just languages right it's not it's not just like oh you know you move into new york and you can learn spanish because there's no Spanish language national myth in the United States, necessarily, the way there is a French language, a French-Canadian community and so on. And then, so you come in and then there's these two communities. There's also the Anglophone community that's all, you know... uh, My wife was always confused by my my aunt. We'd go over there. My aunt speaks, like, perfect French, you know? My wife doesn't speak English. And uh, my aunt... But my aunt would sort of stubbornly know, yeah, uh, I'm going to use English or whatever, and all this just because to be, like you know, this is Canada or something sort of in a stubborn way. And my wife was always sort of confused by that. Like why, what's the big deal? You know, (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. a language like what. And so I, I, this is something I mentioned in the article. I think that a lot of people coming into Montreal, I think this speaks to your thing about St. Leonard and, you know, LaSalle and whatnot, is i've read studies that show that third languages survive longer in Montreal. I remember reading something about this. It was an article
1: is Tula Drumanos, she yeah. uh, had she 's had a couple articles really? on that where she says like she showed like the stats that montreal is has the highest percentage of, of retention of, of trilingual of... people in yeah. all of North america yeah. It is the like biggest percentage so this is not only like an Extraordinarily bilingual city. It's an extraordinarily <laughs> trilingual city, yeah. and this is like Matthew Bocoté. I mean, he's not as bad as uh, you know, like what's what's his name? I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. But like they sort of misrepresenting, uh, you know, what what is that horrible article? It was like on the front, uh, the cover of L'Actualité. It was like "Ici par English." Uh, and it was like, uh, and it was this just incredibly like
2: was it Buck Culter? No, the it other was. I'm uh, yeah. blanking on his name. He yeah. went for
1: the head of the PQ and he lost. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he's on the news all the time. I don't know. Anyway, but he basically completely misrepresented the stats and said that English was taking over Montreal. But like, there's so many things wrong with that. First of all it's wrong because um actually like you know and i know from our students right that my students are for the uh, the vast majority of them are not only perfectly bilingual in french and english they usually speak a third language as well at a high level of proficiency so uh what he was the the uh, Jean-François Lise. Oh, Lise. Yeah, and he—he's he, written
2: some pretty good books, though.
1: Uh, he wrote a good book
2: in the Eye of the Eagle. I don't know if you've read that. that dug up all the CIA files, but yeah, no, I—I I I, I, I don't like him. I as, find I,
1: him like a deeply, <laughs> deeply uh, dishonest person. Like he's somebody that, like, actually, to me, it's sort of one, uh, like, a, a good rough definition of evil is somebody who who knows better but does worse. Are you it's sure like he, he knows better, yes, yeah, yeah. he's very smart, he's yeah. very self aware yeah, okay. he knows Maybe. exactly, like that article uh you know ici uh english like that was uh, that was such a complete act of like mendacity, like yeah. knowingly lying, like you know that what you're saying is a lie, but you say it anyway, like yes, it was the biggest. Inauguration crowd ever in the history, like Sean Spicer, who's now said, "Yes, I knew it was a lie. Like I knew I was lying. Like, like it's like you knowingly lie because you feel like it's good for your cause. You know, mm-hmm. like for because yeah, Trump told me to say that. So, yeah, yeah I mean,
2: I, there's a few things I'd say about that. First of all, um, the language retention thing is. Um, an interesting phenomenon I, I, I myself am a trilingual Montrealer And I'm not one of these people who You know, I didn't come here from Italy or something And then, you know, learn French and English I, I sort of went back uh, Kind of backed into it through, you know, going, you know, being Growing up speaking only English And then uh, becoming fluent in French And then now living partly in Spanish And so I'm very proud of that cosmopolitan uh, nature I feel like I'm connected directly to it um, I think it's really cool. Uh, and how,
1: how you, I'm sorry to interrupt. But I, I got yeah. to know how did you get so good at Spanish? I've been wanting to ask you that for years. How did you learn? How did you get. Uh, I don't know, just talk, speaking it. I but, guess. but did I... you go to like, did you live in a yeah, Spanish country? No, for I didn't know. Or... I,
2: I, well, I mean. Yeah, how did I do? Because I've heard you uh, speaking
1: Spanish, and you're so good. And I'm yeah. like, how did this guy learn? Like, here, Have you heard me speaking Spanish. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. Okay, yeah. wow. At okay. Elsa's once, we were oh, really? So I'm that's just talking funny. Spanish here. Oh, yeah. But like, I just <laughs> I don't I, like. That. Where did you Where that's did you funny. learn how to? Yeah.
2: Um, well, thank you for the compliment. First of all, I, I and probably that's a number of years ago, so maybe it's a bit better. But uh, well, I. You know, I guess, suppose if I go back a long, long time ago, I was engaged briefly to a woman from Chile, and I started learning it then. But then, that didn't work out, and um, and then I uh, I went through my life. So I, maybe I learned a little bit at that point. I don't know. I, I you know, and then. Um, I started, I learned some other languages when I went and lived in Europe, you know, and so on. I learned how to speak them, which I can't speak anymore. So maybe that helped me just. You,
1: you learned a little Polish or. No, Slovak. Slovak. I got okay. to a
2: point where I could go and, you know, it's funny when, when you go to a new country and, and you start learning another language, right? I don't know if you ever experienced this here. So you. You're learning it, and then, and then you go and you try and use it, and someone talks to you, and you have this terrifying experience. You don't have any idea what they're saying. So you, so you sort of go around with your heads, head down, hoping no one's going to talk to you. And if you say something, they think you speak it. and But then there's a certain point where... All of a sudden, you start understanding it. So then you go around trying to find people to talk to, right? <laughs> just because, just because you can, right? You know. Yeah. So I had that with Slovak, and then I forgot it all. And it also happened to me with German because my uncle lives in Germany, and the same experience. And so, by the you know, by the time I started traveling in the Caribbean was in about 2010. I was in my late 30s. Um, I I went I. Uh, I went to Cuba, and then I went to a couple years later Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and just spent a lot of time traveling. And I'd bring a book with me, and I would just go around and talk to. And Hispanics too are very, very sort of friendly in the Caribbean, open people. So if Mm -hmm. you go around, you talk to people. They don't care if you're screwing up the, you know. There's no sort of like you know wincing when you screw up the pronunciation or whatever. They're very open people. So that's pretty much how I did it, and then. I started spending a lot of time in the Dominican Republic and then eventually met my wife. And at the time, she didn't speak any English or French, you know, when we first met. In fact, the only thing she knew about Canada was Niagara Falls, you know, which tells you uh, people. Niagara Falls is a big thing in other countries, right? You know, so that's pretty much how I did it. But I just I don't know that, you know, just to go back to the French thing, I wanted to return to that. the French language is very deeply anchored in me. It's probably more anchored in you um, because you probably learned it before me. But it's a very emotional thing for me in some senses. And so I almost have a, I have a sort of a um, an atavistic defense for some of those separatists like Lise and Bakote in some senses because I had a lot of friends who, you know. And so basically if I sort of step into the mindset of a person who – is, uh, you know, uh, a person who, who looks at Quebec and thinks, well, you know, uh, they, they look at Alberta or Manitoba, you know. I, I saw Pierre Bourgot one time give a speech at uh, UCAM, and he, I remember him saying, he, he, he gave these rousing speeches, he was this amazing speaker, but he said at one point how 100 years ago, this was in the 1990s, that Manitoba was 50-50, french english right and now it's what five percent or something so you know i i, I sort of and I, I think about that and i think if i were a francophone like what if that were to happen in quebec what if we were to teleport ourselves imagine john we teleported a 100 or two you know tw- the year 2200 or something and you know the population of quebec is about speaking French, French Canadians, and they live mostly out in the little villages. And then the island of Montreal, even people who are French Canadian origin and all the immigrants and all the anglophones is like 90, 95% English. And I mean, Brussels is something it's in the Dutch speaking part of Belgium and it's like 85% French speaking. It's like much more. So Montreal has a more um, evenly distributed English French thing. Brussels. I've, I've been to Brussels. Like nobody speaks Dutch in Brussels. Like like it's like you know you hear it like here and there. You know it's not like Eng- it's not like French in Montreal, which is very common. But this is why I don't. I, I want. I was asking the question before when these people say that English is increasing in Montreal. I, I sort of take that as an empirical question. Like maybe it is. You know. Um. One of the things. So I've looked into this. You know, Andrew Cadell. You know, no. He's a journalist in Montreal. He does a lot of work. Uh, we're friends on Facebook, me and him. He's a real interesting guy. But he's done a lot of digging into this. And um, he pointed out something interesting to me. He pointed out that 13 point, you know, because I always thought that Quebec's population was about 8 percent Anglophone. Right. Um, which sounds about right. And in Montreal, I heard it was 17 percent. Right. Right. But that's only true if you take, you know, de Souche, people like yourself and myself who grew up speaking English in the home and probably went to English schools. You can also ask the question to people, what language do – which of the two official languages do you, do you you know use the most often and feel the most comfortable in or something? If you use that, Quebec is I think th- 13.5%. English which means that you have a gap of about five and a half percent there, which most likely are people in places like Park Extension or Anjou who are likely their first language is something like Greek or some other language, and maybe they can speak French but they 're more comfortable using English right so th- so what we see there is a kind of and you know you, we see almost like a kind of like a, um, a competition for the allophones coming in. Are they gonna? That's really what the the, if if the French language is going to survive. That's where it's going to survive. So, um, you could say, well, wow. You know, when my mom came here in nineteen whatever the nineteen fifties, ninety five percent of immigrants were going into the English schools. So, if that practice had continued, this you know we'd be up to like it'd be like a quarter of the population or so twenty percent or something. On the other hand, it means that by my calculation, about 30 or 40 percent of immigrants are m- sort of m- being integrated more in like into the English speaking community, which, again, if people want to do that, you know, you called me a libertarian er- earlier, earlier, that may be fine. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, if I'm putting on my, my you know, my hat or glasses or whatever, which is a kind of like a, um, a, a, a nationalist who's looking forward because I, I have a theory that French Canadians sort of think in sort of very long, you know, in sort of hundred-year increments. I think that's part of the reason for that paranoia. They've they've been worried about losing. They first they worried about their wor-
1: losing I, their religion. I think in those increments too. Yeah, right. And, and so, absolutely. <laughs> so so
2: I, I have a theory that French Canadians are more attuned to that than say Anglo Canadians and especially Americans. Whenever I try to explain this thing about the concern of the French language to American friends are like, pfft, shrugging their shoulders. like Who cares if people, people should do what they want to do? And I totally agree with that. On the other hand, if we were to, I'm sure you would agree, if we were to teleport ourselves into that future and you found that Quebec was basically like Manitoba or Alberta or Ontario is today, I'm not sure I want to live in that place. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't. And so like, are they, you talked about that stubborn loyalty. Like maybe that's a kind of, that's a way that it's expressing itself of like a kind of, um the only way it's going to maintain is if some people are sort of chauvinistic about the French
1: language. Yeah.
2: I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I hope not. I actually, I, I actually agree you know? with
1: you. I think, I think that's, um, I don't want in, that to translate you know, into ethnically. But you know. increasingly, you know, in in many many ways, uh, Nasim Nicholas Taleb is the first person who introduced me to this idea. But he has this um, in his book Anti-Fragile. He says how like actually, if you look at the average, or you look at like what is like kind of popular in a passive way at any particular time, that's not necessarily what is going to stand the test of time. That's true. He says like. And so he has this whole theory. He says, like, what you really have to focus on is intolerant minorities. He says, like, intolerant minorities have made most of history happen. Like, on every, you know, for good and evil. So he gives, like, he says, for instance, like, you know, the slavery was abolished. And every pretty much everywhere that slavery was abolished, it wasn't abolished because... Like the majority of the people were against slavery, it was just a really, really highly motivated minority who thought it was absolutely evil and kept pushing for it like crazy. But that's an idea. And they minority. Uh, and but, no, but right? he say, but he so goes through many, many right? examples. He's like, yeah. if you look at you know the the rehabilitation of Hebrew in Israel or uh, Finnish in Finland or all these different like. Like, language groups that are or, or Gaelic. What happened to Finnish Gaelic in Finland? Was uh, it ever in danger? Finland, yeah. Really? The Finnish language, yeah. Gaelic, Hebrew, all these languages were almost extinct. Well, Gaelic is still and, almost gone. And okay. people decided, we're going to revive this. And they were very chauvinistic about it. And they said, we're going to, like, really push this. And that's what revived the language. And that's what, like, pushed it. And many things, he says, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, lots of products all over the western world say on them that they're kosher right why are they yes. kosher 0. right
2: 1% of the world's it's, population is yeah, Jewish, yeah. but it's <laughs> yeah. it's
1: it's an intolerant minority that has pushed for something yeah. and that's uh and you know he, he gives like so many examples in his in his book he says like you know people who were really against like genetically modified organisms pushed like crazy to say uh, McDonald's, like, we don't want your French fries to be from GMO potatoes. And so McDonald's, this massive, like, global corporation, decided, fuck it, okay, fine. Uh, okay, uncle. Like, they, like, made all the... And by that one move, they actually did more for the anti-GMO movement than all the activists who were lobbying governments combined by so, that one thing. So how does
2: this connect to the French language right now I just sort of agreeing with you is, that like a, being yeah.
1: being kind of very pushy and chauvinistic right. about right. your little your cultural <laughs> thing is actually it has well, been proven to be successful throughout history. Well, it actually me, does work.
2: Let me try and rephrase the question because you have like there's eighty, you know, what is about seventy eight seventy nine percent of Quebec's population is French Canadian. Um, and then there's this, you know, kind of about 12% of allophones and a little over half of them are actually francophones mostly, right? I mean, you see this mm-hmm. with your students. I I see it with a lot of my students. And then you've got within, so you could say Quebec is maybe like 85 to 90% French speaking, something like that, if you sort of you take in those other uh, people as well. You're saying that there has to be some sort of an intolerant, separatist minority underneath that in order to maintain the French language? Is that... They don't have
1: to be separatists, but there mm-hmm. do have to be people who are not basically going <laughs> with the flow. Right. That They're not willing to just sort of do whatever you know everybody else is yeah. doing. They're willing to sort of like dig their heels in and stick to their guns. You know, in yeah. the same way that like, uh, you know, I think it's it's, what's that wonderful book by Karen Armstrong, The History of God, where she talks about, like, the ancient Hebrews and how, like, they were just stubbornly monotheistic. And they and they just, like, even though, you know, people like the Romans, the Assyrians, all these different groups were like, you need to be more multicultural and respect our gods. We'll respect yours. And they're like, fuck no. And, like... The Christians, and,
2: too. The early Christians
1: were very... Uh, yes, yeah. They uh, would... Continue, intolerant. Minor, in, they in, they brought down, like, in, you know, all sorts of things. You yeah. know, like... But, in, and so... His point is that we have this idea that comes from marketing theory often, that somehow you have to, like, build a coalition coalition to get to a majority. And he's like, no, actually, very often, if you have, like, a small intolerant minority that is, like, if you have, like, you know, some really hardcore, like, anti-government, uh, anarcho-libertarians within the Republican Party are like, yeah, we just want, like, no government. Like, and they're really intolerant and really pushy. You got a Freedom Caucus. They can actually get a lot done, you know? And if you have, like, a small minority of super woke people within, like, an institution and they just take over the HR department, they can get, like, a lot of stuff done even though the vast majority of the people in the organization Mm -hmm. think they're annoying and full of shit. They can capture particular institutions and they can... Like push through yeah. their it's 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 the I mean this is I mean to some extent this is Lenin's big insight right like Marx was like oh we gotta wait until things get really bad and then the working class the proletariat like, oh, will rise up, uh, rise up rise <laughs> up against the the bourgeoisie thing, right? yeah. and and Lenin had this insight he's like actually you don't need to like convince the majority you just have to have a ruthless like unbelievably I mean, murderous, ruthless minority that's willing to do anything to win. And if they're very well-coordinated, they can defeat, like, a, you know, a whole... I, I don't know if you've been, like, if you listen to the the Martyrmaid podcast, no, like Daryl Cooper, but he his whole, like, the series he's doing right now is all in the Russian Revolution. And it's just, I mean, I kind of, like, I've read this stuff before in books... But seeing the way he's presenting it, it's just stunning. It's such a kind of like an illustration of what Taleb's talking about. He just shows how like the Leninists, like they, the Bolsheviks, they uh, just threw a campaign of like like assassination, murder, like just horrible, like not playing by the rules at all, willing to kick you in the balls to win the fight, like do anything. (laughs) They completely uh, took over – and all the social democrats and the more kind of like open-minded people and the liberals—they the came in classical third. liberals and they stuff came like in that, third in the elections. They just so they were end. willing to stomp all over them, <laughs> and they ended up like taking over the USSR. You know, yeah, because Created, they creating the USSR. Yeah, because yeah. they were an intolerant minority, and like you see that happening in many places where you have a small, highly motivated peop- group that can take over everything. Just because they're really persistent and you know, well-motivated.
2: I, I think – I mean I can, I can hear what – what I'm hearing you saying is, is – I think we might be talking about two different things, but I'm not sure, so I want to flesh it out a little bit. It seems to me to – what would prove your thesis is that you could say that going back to the to, – I'm trying to return it to my article mm-hmm. all the time. It's, so the, the, the flag thing was probably the, – the separatist threat was a very small – um, threat at that point a very small percentage of the population. Well, maybe 10 or 20% of the population. And and the idea was, well, we don't want this to grow. So we're going to try and appease those who are, you know, um, and that, that subset of the population has not changed. I have a theory that somewhere between 15 and 20% of people in French, in, in Quebec, in French Canada, um, going back to 1763 these are the hard nationalists that I describe in the article they don't care about any sort of appeasement or anything these are the people you're talking about they they want their french independent french dominated state and they don't care about any sort of compromise to go in the
1: in the meantime oh i uh, disagree with you i think yeah. it's changed completely i mean the average age and matthew bocuti has has talked about this people have asked him like in public you know, talks and stuff like, and I asked him in one talk, and he was very unhappy about that. But like, I no the the average age of a separatist in Quebec it's like a Neil Young concert at this point. It's like a boomer fest. Mm. It's like the you know the, they're all glowing with Viagra pills and like you know yeah. like heart medication. It's it's, what, what it's an aging. It? It's like I think the average, the average age. That's The average age of a separatist. The average age of somebody right. who like a sovereigntist is. In the early sixties yeah. young people are not interested in they they feel like it's maybe i 'm not expressing myself well i
2: mean you 're talking about the incarnation of of separatism that came up in the that we 're talking about, so you 're talking about the Re people who under that i 'm talking about people who they there's there's a kind of a sentiment just that they want their separate state and those some of those people who are younger like i, I was talking to a a student of mine yesterday he stayed after class to talk and he, and it came up and he said i'm you know, i'm basically and this guy was a young guy and he's and you hear this a lot from young separatists they say it's lost there's nothing we can do but that guy if if you, you had a referendum tomorrow he would vote yes Right. So I I think I think it could be I I still think if you were to poll people under thirty, you'd probably have at least ten or fifteen percent in Quebec who would who would be I'd say like fifteen percent of people who would but be, that's not right? much i know i, mean, that's I know, not I know not no no, much, well, yeah. no but, also, no, but it, first of all that, it, that's what it's always been it's all like my theory is going back there's one in 5 between one in 6 and one in 4 something like that right who under doesn't matter what the circumstances are and that can grow very easily right and that's in fact that's pretty much what happened in the post war era was all of a sudden, as I you know, the, as I say in the article, all bets were off. You know, the colonial masters were sort of receding, and so then all of a sudden, there you know, there became a kind of a, 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 a struggle for the hearts and minds of, of the people, and then it became this back and forth, and the soft nationalists who occupy you know among the francophone population somewhere between. Once you get beyond that 15 percent up to about 60 percent, something like that, you don't get – once you get beyond about 60 percent of Quebecers under the current political environment, you'd never get a referendum under the current conditions that would be more than about 65 or 70 percent in favor. There's no way that could happen. Um, but in any case, um, just to go back to what I was saying before, the the the, the those people, the 15 or 10 to 20% are still there. They're going to be there in a hundred years, you know, and, but the, the, the question then goes to go back to your theory. Like, do you need them to, in order for the front, you
1: need some people to be chauvinistic. I don't know. I don't know. I think you do. I think you you do. do. I think you have to, you have to have, um, that sort of like, you know, it's, it's like in any group, whether it's like, you know, uh, you know, Gebe- what what, Jews, what is it, that group? You have to have though? like an Orthodox group that are like really pure yeah. and really want to have their own thing, and they are just like an anchor for the rest of the group. Like you've got to have them. So you mean
2: French Canadians in this state? When you say group, right?
1: Um, it could. It doesn't necessarily right. have to be French kid, but you have to have like. No, but it, like just I voted in the concept. Yeah, of Quebec, like yeah. I, I I, voted, I, I voted. I, I voted I for separation. That, yeah? I <laughs> voted for separation when I was when yeah. I was young and stupid, yeah. um, and I, <laughs> um, and but, but at the time, right? I didn't realize that the sovereigntist movement was essentially a, a kind of. A, like an uneasy you know politics makes strange bedfellows it was like an uneasy three. marriage it's
2: three separate visions as chantal Hébert pointed out in her oh tell me yeah. well there's there's three because there was uh, mario dumont and uh, um, bouchard and who and parisot and they were in this triumvirate and the reality is they each had and they got together. You remember they got together and gave this press conference. And they're like, "Yeah, we're all united." Chantal Eibar. I'm, I'm not sure if I've read her whole book, but she wrote a whole book. She she found out later that basically the one who was the nationalist that you were scared of. The you know that you, I've heard you talk about this. How you discovered when he made his statement, sort of the the kind of the ethnic nationalist type. That was Pariso. Lucien Bouchard, he was, a, he was one of these just, I want my state, I don't care, and I'm an ethnic nationalist. He, he was hiding that. But but Bouchard and Zumont had this idea. Bouchard thought that it would give us leverage to deal with Ottawa, right? It's, uh, it tells you how confused the whole thing was. It was very – even people who were working together. Parizeau even stopped taking his phone calls at the end when it looked like they were going to win. He didn't – Bouchard was calling. He wouldn't even – You know. he basically used him to come in. So – that raises the question about um what what we
1: mean by a group so what's the right? third vision the third vision god
2: you know i'm trying to remember
1: cuz i always I, thought of it as being Z- two
2: dumont had a kind of um it was sort of like kind of like what the what uh, as i if i'm remembering hopefully someone can fact check me on this but dumont is he's the um the 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 progenitor of the caq as i'm sure you're aware right so so that they they have taken on the old Idea that Duplessis had basically of autonomism that we can be um, sort of, we can, as long as we have enough independence within Canada, we don't need to create our own country, more or less, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think that Dumont had that idea um, that it wasn't about leverage, it was just sort of like, you know, not about getting Ottawa to do stuff for us, but just stay out of our affairs, basically, something like that. And we'll, we'll you know, um, yeah. But to be to be honest, I'm not exactly sure about the difference between those two. But Parisot was a, a real Parizeau uh, type, mm. of, uh, you know. Um, but but I still don't understand the you know I don't know the 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 concept of group gets a little amorphous because if the percentage of the population ethnically speaking is declining, French Canadians are, which is in fact happening, right? Does that necessarily mean that that, sep- that that nut is eventually going to dissipate in the population? I think and, something, I think something,
1: you know, you know, one of the big, big stories of the next 20 years, <laughs> I think, in this place and in the Western world in general is like the two places right now in the industrialized world that have the lowest birth rate Japan and Quebec. It's risen. Though. The it,
2: it's, no, just a, a quick point yeah. on that. The the birth rate dropped in in Quebec down to it bottomed out in the late nineteen nineties. Which, um, as a SEJA professor, you know that led to a decline in our enrollment. But it, as I understand it, rebound. It's rebounded, and Quebec has um, a higher birth rate than the Canadian average now.
1: Yes, but if um, you if you break that down, yeah. like in the I, I've looked at the the, the stats yeah. can data and stuff like that it's the vast majority of the birth rate in Quebec is it's happening yeah. among like yeah. the yeah. inuit it's on, uh, the cree and people the in mohawk Montreal. yeah it's happening among greeks you know like hasidic jews uh italians uh, arabs yeah. like Haitians, it's yeah. it's It is like if you just if you if you separate out French Canadians, your land like like French Canadians in Quebec, they have they have a (laughs) unbelievably low birth rate. Like it is it is really kind of it's not quite as extreme as as Japan, Japan. but it's it's in the same realm, right? So this is literally a people that like Japan is like freaking out right now. Because they have this problem. We have a mini version of this problem. So Japan is an incredibly xenophobic country. They do not – people who have been there for generations can't really be accepted in Japanese society, much less people who, like – it's it's incredibly hard to immigrate. they robots instead of having immigrate immigrants. Immigrate to, right. like, to move to Japan. Yeah. It's incredibly hard. And they're very – and the – like, there's all these crazy stats in Japan where, like – like half of the younger generation right now are hitting never been, 30. Never and been in a relationship. They've, never, they've yeah. never had sex in their lives. They're hitting yeah. 30 not only as virgins, but they've never even been in a relationship, and they have no desire to ever be in a yeah. relationship. That's interesting. Quebec also has, among white francophones, they went from, in 1950... Having the highest birth rate, the the highest birth rate yeah. yeah. And actually, they had like seven
2: children per woman, it was or insane. Yeah, like, that was the average. And then, if that you go
1: back to like 1920, 1930, they had one of the highest birth rates on planet Earth, yeah. like. And they've gone from that infant mortality was to high too, incredibly among, high, among the very, very high. Population. Yeah, I mean, it was yeah. higher than like yeah. Bombay. And well, like uh, east and you know. west
2: of St. Lawrence Boulevard, apparently, it's astonishing difference between Anglo oh, and Franco in those days. Yeah, yeah, it yeah which was is so crazy, but that's a it separate, was totally, I don't to totally
1: into, crazy. Yeah. But the <laughs> so, this is a population right now that has an incredibly, incredibly low birth rate, and so the only way. That this population, I mean, the, the, basically there's two ways that you can uh, continue do. your culture, right? You can have babies or you can, like, convert people either by through, like, if you're a religion, through evangelism or through, <laughs> like, immigration and you integrate people into your system. That, that's, there, there is no third way. Like, there's either that one or the other. You either, like, reproduce by having tons of babies uh, and this is or at why... least enough to replace. Uh, the birth rate would have to get up to replace in order yeah, to maintain a stability. It's nowhere near replacement but, but
2: one thing I want to say about that is that is where – this is where I really appreciate you outlining all that because that makes me think that that's the future. The future is
1: in that allophone population. And if we care about the French oh, And ones, the indigenous population. Okay. Yeah. The indigenous population up north? They have by far the highest birth rate in yeah. Canada right now. No, but I'm I Which I about... think is like just glorious and yeah. wonderful. It's like we, we killed them all with disease and now they're finally like getting a, another shot, you know? Yeah. But like, no, but, my, but like, I have like a lot of my students from like way up north in, in yeah. the Inuit communities and, and Cree communities, they have like. It's like talking to like you know the sons of Israel or it's like they have like eleven kids like in their family, like twelve kids they yeah. the I have like students who are nineteen years old and they've already got four kids yeah, like wow. and they've they're they're you know be fruitful and multiply they're having tons so the future of but, Quebec if yeah. Vaudreuil is the fastest growing district in all of Quebec by a significant margin what, and what, Vaudreuil. Is like on the uh, off the West Island,
2: but what's that have to do with the indigenous population?
1: Uh, Because places like up north in Vaudreuil is where all the population growth is happening, and these are not white francophone places. These are places that are speaking languages other than French and doing different things. See, this is this is why um um
2: because I'm looking I'm looking again I guess I've got my separatist hat on here. But I'm I'm not an ethnic French Canadian, so I'm looking at it. Or maybe if I were, I would be looking at it through a more um, pluralistic lens. So I'm thinking, if if if, if Quebec is going to survive as a French-dominated polity, it's going to have to be that 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 um, you know hearts and minds thing has to be um, mostly French. And as as I described earlier, it is in fact mostly. Um, and and I think that the future will have to be some sort of a separation there, where, um, you know, if if the separatist movement is ever going to reanimate itself, which it very easily could, I mean, mm-hmm. people who say that it will probably I completely and, and, agree.
1: You know, pe- even people Justin who think- <laughs> Trudeau said when Harper was prime minister. Yeah, Justin Trudeau said on the radio, if Canada keeps going in this like right wing. Like direction, and if they st- if they get rid of gay marriage and they get rid of stuff like that, he said, I might consider you know voting Do you really for think separation. He was serious
2: about that? I mean, because he yes. says a lot of things.
1: Yeah. So I think uh, he's yeah. you know he's an actor. He's sort of like yeah, you know whatever. True. He's a method actor. But, he believes what he's saying in the moment. But
2: <laughs> I, I, I hope that we wouldn't go down that way. But I mean, if, if something like I mean, I, I, I'm ref- from my if I were to be swung over to that, it would be along the lines of. Quebec would take on a sort of pluralistic idea around the French language. And I think there are nationalists who do think that way. They, because the, You remember when the Parti Québécois had that um, thing where when people immigrate here, they have to sign this Pledge of Values, and everyone was freaking out. And I remember at that time, Fanny was doing, we were doing the immigration process, and I remember reading through it. And I remember when, I, when those things first came up, you know, I was very sort of like, oh, that's so, you know, intolerant. But then, you know, as the years went by and we start to see all these things about difficulties of integrating people and, and sending the signal to people coming here that, yes, this is a society with a set of values, it's not really that crazy. And it might include the French – in fact, it does include the French language, that thing. It's something that the French is the language of, of Quebec. Um, and – you know, I mean, it, so it, it could become, you know, if the separatist movement were to be reanimated, and it were to, if it is to succeed, it would have to be more widely based. If these ethnic trends are are correct, and in the, at the moment that could not happen because the way, the way it's happening now is if you're a young native-born, um, uh, you know, Canadian who's of non-French Canadian origin you don't really think much about these things most people like as a lot of people don't right and you've um you basically if someone asks you what your nationality is you've been told all your life that canada's sort of a post national country and you you know so you're not really so you'll answer the the nationality of your parents or your grandparents and just on a side note about that this is something that i have Confirmed from years of you know every year on the first class I do an intake interview with the, all of my students and many years ago I when the when the um
1: you do that with a hundred and sixty students every semester. Well, I,
2: I this session I only have a hundred and five, but it's pretty quick. You know, a couple minutes, have a little intake form, and I do it. You know, and you get through the whole group, and just a way of I want to get to know them, and just you know,
1: that's and, pretty awesome. I I, really? I, I think yeah. like I I was chair of my department for years, and like. <laughs> we tried to talk about something like that and like well it it's a lot yeah. of work nobody I mean, wants to do I that. mean I,
2: I can tell you the origins of it because I'm a language teacher so one, originally when I first started doing it at a huntsick I was told you have to do a um, a diagnostic so the original thing was give them a diagnostic and then do an interview with them to see what the, so that's how it started as as a concept and then I figured out ways to do it but when the, the – was it the Charter of Values? Was that what it was with the Parti Québécois? When that came up, I, I that was in about 2012 or so. I, I talked about it with my students and had these amazing conversations. And one of the things that really struck me, I remember this one guy said um, – we were having these great conversations. And he said, you know, my my, my relatives in, in New York and in Paris, if somebody if – somebody, if, if I asked them, you know, what's your nationality? They immediately say American or French. And he said, "I still say Congolese, and I, and he wasn't compla- he wasn't it's interesting like he wasn't saying this in like a bitter like oh Canada he was just uh, pointing it out as a statement of just an observation, and he, he you know just this was sort of interesting to him, and he was wondering about it. a young guy, right how could he know very much He's, he hasn't had that much life experience, so he was just pointing out a, an observation so when I heard that I was and then I talked about it. I remember, and some of the students in that exact discussion I had there was one girl said, yeah my my father is from Italy and my mother's French-Canadian and I call myself Italian. And I, and I started to think – and then and then, I said, that's really weird. And then so in this inter- intake thing, I started putting, you know, name and I just put down nationality. So they'd write down nationality. They had no other information. And I've been doing this for years. And so every single time, you know, they bring in the form and they sit down and I take it and I say, oh, okay, it says uh, – you know, Yvoirelin uh, Francois or something, which is a, as you may know, if you, if you're from Haiti, uh, you have a last name that sounds like a first name and a la- and a first name. that sounds like a last name, right? So or something like that. So, so anyway, so okay, so that means that so I'm I'm reading it and, it's, and it'll say Haitian. So what I do is I'm not going to impose anything. I just say so. Uh, you were born in Haiti? And they go, oh, no, no I was born here, you know. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I say, and so, and I kind of go, okay. And, and I, say, I say, listen, is it okay if I cross out and you can choose Quebecois or Canadian? If, it's, if that's okay with you? And they say, usually, like, yeah, okay. And usually they choose Canadian, but sometimes they say Quebecois, right? Sometimes. Um, and I've been doing this, John, since about 2013, maybe. So we're coming up on a decade. So we're talking hundreds of cases because you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of students, I guess, but a subset who are, and I would say probably about 90% of the time people who, and these are native born Canadians. I want to make that very clear. These are, these are, these are our people. Right. And I think that there's, we're doing something wrong if we if we're not sending the signal to them that they're a part. And I think part of it is our own i think it comes from this multiculturalism which came up as a way of dealing with such a complex multi ethnic state as canada is but then you wonder how sustainable would that be if everybody's just sort of sitting in their own like you know they're just because i always tell them too i say look if you got you know if you're eating griot and everything and you're you're talking in creole with your grandmother and stuff that's totally cool and if you go to festivals with your people and doing compa and everything i love all that's great But you are one of us. And I have this weird sort of, it's like, I don't know if it's an idealistic notion, but I sort of figure if I can look across the table at maybe a few thousand people in the short time that I'm going to have my career and sort of look them in the eyes and say, you're one of us, that maybe that's going to have some kind of butterfly effect somehow and maybe sort of bring this back to a kind of more inclusive sense of nationality. We're being Canadian is for really for everybody, right? We're living in this, we, you know, Trudeau said, Justin Trudeau said this weird statement once about how Canada is a post-national nation, which, I mean, I understand what he means that we're very, I think what he really, to give him the, the benefit of the doubt, he's saying it's a very cosmopolitan country, which I agree with. I mean, you saw in my article, I talk about how we're very proud to be cosmopolitan, but it's also contradictory in a certain sense right you you can't be i mean if you're a nation good and then you and then you move beyond being a nation, then you're not a nation anymore if it's post just i mean just if you're looking at the words in a logical sense, and I don't know are we playing with fire here we We have a very fragile nation anyway it's you know, and so if it if these i mean this is getting back to if if your theory is correct. And you could imagine that people – like imagine if you're – if a larger percentage of the population is not that attached to the French language except to speak it mostly – then they're not going to care that they're going to be oh maybe it's better for my kids to to grow up speaking English because maybe they have only English right because then maybe they can move to the U.S. or maybe they can you know and they w- they won't necessarily maybe they won't have as much of a kind of visceral attachment to the language so maybe that's what we need to transmit to that subset somehow is a kind of like I mean I don't know how to do that I mean do they have to you know I don't know. They probably listen to Gilles Vigneault when they're, you know, when they're in there, <laughs> growing up in school and they learn about René Léviac and it's not catching anyway, but I don't know what the process of that is.
1: I don't, but, I don't know what, what that is either. I, I know that, um, you know, I, I, I had this, like, I went to this one, this, this Lebanese wedding years ago, uh, here in Montreal and. I'm at the reception, there's people from all over the world. There's people from France, people from here, people from the States, people from Lebanon, people, you know, from all over the place, and people from South America. And I remember like having this, you know, wonderful conversation with all these like Lebanese people from all over. I was like, so what's the difference between being Lebanese in different places? And they started sort of – they started laughing and saying – different places? Like being Lebanese in different places. Oh, in in Canada
2: versus the United States. And everywhere else, right? right, right, And they said like, yeah,
1: well – and so they they started laughing and people started chiming in. Everybody's kind of drunk, right? (laughs) And they said, uh, well, you know, in France, you can speak French better than like anybody, you know, in France – you can, like, be incredibly culturally French and everything, and you're still not considered French at all. And, you know, I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time in France, and, like, I've heard that many, many times where I would say something to somebody, like, you know, in Paris and stuff like that. And they would say, like, uh, you know, is he French or is he French? And you know exactly what they mean. Like, is he white and French <laughs> or is he somebody else? And so if he's Algerian or Lebanese, like, yeah, he's not really French. So you can speak the language perfectly. You can be totally a part of the culture, totally integrated, and you will still be considered like an outsider. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's like and they said uh, and so they were saying like in Toronto, for instance, like living there, they're like, you know, you live there for a couple of years and you are 100 percent Canadian. You're totally, a, and people accept you as completely Canadian, totally Torontonian. Uh, New York. You can become like a total New Yorker, an American, New Jersey. Totally, so like uh, Montreal, uh, Quebec. It takes way longer than Canada and the United States. Uh, you know, it take. They were saying it takes like you know five years, ten years. You have to like it takes a while, but you can actually become. Um, considered like you know, like like a Montrealer, you know Quebecois, like in Montreal. But if you go outside of Montreal, if you go into like any like rural areas in Quebec, you are an outsider. It doesn't matter. You can like know all of Quebec songs and Quebec culture and Quebec movies and be totally integrated into Quebec Quebecois culture. Mm-hmm. You can speak French perfectly like, better than, like, the native-born people, and you still will not be considered part of the tribe. And that's, uh, and they said, that's the big difference. And they said, that is going to be a big problem for a place that has a super low birth rate. It's like, if you can't accept people, you know, like, you can can convert to Christianity, to, to Islam, to Judaism, to, like, and you'll be considered hundred percent like one of the club, right? If you go through, you jump through the hoops, right? You can become Canadian, you can become American. It's hard to become Quebecois. Well, I think outside that, of Montreal and Quebec City, it's hard.
2: Well, I think that I think that that is in fact. I, I think that's. I mean, just to go back to the article again, what I was saying at the beginning about how the deal with the French Canadians was. Uh, among, you know, by the British and so on was, uh, you know, you go over there and stay in your corner. And that worked well. And I think that there's, I think probably outside Montreal there's probably people are they live they maybe they still live in that world in the sense that they feel like that Asterix village a little <laughs> bit you know what I mean like uh, they, they feel like
1: that 's how i 've always pictured Quebec as like you
2: know sort of surrounded by all these Romans, so
1: they kind of feel garrison mentality garrison
2: mentality because they because whenever they go they they get in their you know their fifth wheel or whatever and they go down to wildwood or hollywood beach or whatever you know that's exactly <laughs> what i was thinking it's so <laughs> funny to, we're like exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. like
1: wildwood <laughs> yeah, in like yeah. Florida. they go down yeah.
2: there and they're sort of going in they're afraid because they know they're going to have trouble talking to the guy in the gas station and everything and all that kind of stuff so i think that some of that um that i think that that garrison mentality existed and it worked well in the context and i think that what we're seeing and perhaps the fact that you said quebec city i'm Included in that is kind of an advancement because it has very few minorities compared to Montreal, but is perhaps an advancement that maybe the idea is starting to penetrate into the population of at least the city. That you know,
1: maybe, maybe, but that's a change. That's a change. If you look at the history of Quebec, right, in the 19th century. There were decades and decades where Quebec City had nothing but Anglo police chiefs and Anglo maris. It had a huge Jewish population, it had a Hispanic population. Quebec City used to be a much more multicultural. Like, Quebec City is sort of like what has happened to a lot of Eastern Europe, where they basically just either through genocide and the Holocaust and through running people off. These, I mean, that, that what, what, what's Quebec his name City, in his, though, in his right? book? Tony, just, Jute, Tony Jute in his yeah. book, Post War, he talks about like all of these like Eastern European cities from like uh, up north all the way down to the Mediterranean used to be these incredibly multicultural cities. And through uh, expulsion, genocide, various things like that, mass murder, they just kicked out the, the gypsies, the Germans, the Jews, all these different like yeah. ethnic groups. And so suddenly you got, like, these much more sort of homogeneous, like, but Quebec City was not uh, a homogeneous white francophone city. That was something because they basically, I mean, they didn't kill them, but they scared off everybody else. I think that's an important point. I I, I just want to. And Montreal was, English was the most commonly spoken language in Montreal in 1900. And Yiddish was number two. French was number three. So Côté and these people who say, like, oh, it's becoming all English, it fucking was. <laughs> like, it yeah. was. And, like, it. Well, you this know. is, again, yeah, I mean, this. It, this
2: I, I heard once that English peaked in the 1850s in Montreal at mm-hmm. about 60 or 65%. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, but I do want to return to this Eastern European thing because I think it, it is a good comparison to um, – I, I, I would want to separate how that occurred because – in central Europe, you had, um, you had these, Um, big empires like the Russian Empire and Austria-Hungary and um, uh, Germany was much larger and you had um, some other, Turkey extended into many parts of Eastern Europe. And most of those empires... The Ottoman Empire, yeah. The Ottoman Ottoman Empire, right. And most of those empires, um, because I lived in Slovakia, you know, and and when I lived in Slovakia, I remember I I was learning about the place, and Slovakia is still about 10% Hungarian. Uh, and it's about ten percent Gypsy, uh, uh, Roma, Roma, Roma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, I, I always, you know, when people say that they're so intolerant and everything, it's like that's still like that now. And part of the reason for the, you know, if if you really the re, Tony Jude, I, I, I read that book and I, I, I thought it was a good book, but I don't remember much about it. So maybe he talked about this, but the real reason why there was so much ethnic cleansing in in Europe. Uh, Central Europe was because of the Nazi invasion and the, the the absolute, you know, just the nuclear explosion of that. It's also connected to the 1919 conference. So you have all of a sudden, World War I, the, all of a sudden you have these little countries that are created. Tom, by the way, Thomas Sowell, we talked a lot of, we talked about Thomas Sowell last time. He talks a lot about this, about when they, these countries were created, you did have a lot of this uh, revanchism basically that, that went on. And, you know so then you have but that wasn't what really ran off all the germans and the jews and the you know what i mean like i mean there was all that stuff was going on those dynamics in the interwar e- era it was really just the just the you know the i was going to say nuclear bomb but it's not really a nuclear bomb but just the nazi invasion and then when they pushed you know the germans back out there was the expulsions of the germans um, which is something you're probably aware of. That's very few people know about this. Um, but the, after World War II, I think it's somewhere between 10 and 12 million people were um, expelled. It was three million from Czechoslovakia alone, and then from Poland and Russia and all these places. And they were sent, you know, sent home, right? Uh, you know, which was um, which is ridiculous, like sort of the crazy. Church, the church, right? the,
1: the church that my <laughs> wife and I go to. Yeah. It's a German Lutheran church. Yeah. And a lot of the people in our church are people who were part of the yeah. expulsions. Oh yeah. They were like these were these were people who did not in any they'd never way been to Germany. They'd never, they'd never been, been to, to Germany. Germany. Yeah. They didn't support the Nazis at all. Yeah. But basically they were collateral damage. So after World War II, these new ethnic nationalist governments took over and they were like, We're kicking out all of our Jews. So and it all of co- our Germans. And they yeah. kicked out all these people, yeah. uh, and and they were just – they a lot of them – they ended up all over the place, but they end, a lot of them ended up here. A bunch of them ended up here. Mostly in Germany. My, my, uh, my, my and uncle – And they were just, yeah. like, completely – and I've talked to, like, some of these old people. In fact, I I, I talked, had a long conversation with this guy who's, like, 92, like, just a few weeks ago. But, like – and he said it was horrible. He He said, imagine if, you know, there was this big – Uh, A kind of war that happened between, like, English Canadians and French Canadians, and, like, it happened all in, like, Ontario or, like, Manitoba or Alberta, and then suddenly they just decided that all these Anglophones in Quebec, who really just didn't have a dog in the fight at all and didn't really care and thought of themselves as Montrealers... What do you mean they they, yeah. they felt like Montrealers and they didn't really have <laughs> any connection like I don't and yeah. I, I don't know about you but I don't feel any deep connection to Canada at all. I feel a deep connection to Montreal, to Quebec. Uh, Canada, I like Canadians but they're like you know, they're sort of like cousins that I see on the holidays, and I like them, but I don't How hang out with them normally. Is that, though? Not sustainable yeah. at all. Um, <laughs> that, that's kind of what I'm the, getting uh, at, right? They, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, um, you know? But imagine if there was a I war the, uh, the between house. them, and yeah. like, and then suddenly they told all the Anglophones in Montreal who've been here for their whole lives, "Okay, we're kicking you out." Because we don't trust you anymore, yeah. as like people, and that's what they said it felt like. Like all these Germans who didn't like, they fucking hated Hitler. They didn't have any sympathy for the Nazi. Some of them the did. Some of them, symp- did. Was, some of them yeah. did. But the ones that, that I know, of, I trust. Yeah. they didn't have well, anything. They say now, too. and they got kicked yeah. out, yeah. and because they're like, well, we don't trust you, right? Yeah. So I mean, this is like one of the big problems with like civil wars, right? Is that when you have a civil war you get this sorting thing, right? Like, so, I mean, Stephen Marsh talks about this in his new book, right, The Next Civil War in the States. He's like, you know, you you end up with a bunch of people. It's like musical chairs, right? You get a bunch of people who end up, like, without a chair in the place where they are. So if you were, like, a southerner who happened to be on the other side of the Mason-Dixon line, you needed to get over there, right? And vice versa, if you were, like, northerner, like, for instance, the the reason why there is West Virginia— was because yeah, there were a lot of people in Virginia who didn't support slavery. This yeah. well, it wasn't so much slavery. They just they hated the slaveholders, right, right? Because the slaveholders well, were this small elite that ran everything, and they were the mountain and, people, and, right? In and West the Virginia, mountain people, they, yeah, they, they were the mountain poor people, the mountain people were. I mean, they yeah. weren't like against slavery. They weren't like well, anti-racist. They were. yeah. No, they really weren't. <laughs> they were like super racist. But they yeah. they didn't hate slavery. They hated slaveholders, right? And so there were all these people, like, in Kentucky and West Virginia and, like, southern Ohio and stuff like that, that basically just, they really hated this small elite that had, like a like, a crazy grip on, stranglehold on, like, wow. political power. They drastically reduced the franchise. So the vast majority of, like, free white men, didn't have the vote yeah, that's interesting. I didn't effectively know that. oh yeah Yeah. i mean like so it wasn't the vast just the
2: slaves it was also the no the
1: man. vast majority of like like in, especially in south carolina like places like south carolina the vast majority of free white men didn't have the vote and so you had this small minority of like super powerful slaveholders who ran everything and they and so there were a lot of like white people who couldn't stand them and so they ended up like being uh fighting like like sort of like rebel incursions against the Confederacy, mm-hmm. and there were some of the worst massacres that were really like over the line, like killing women and children, concentration camps, even Andersonville, uh, was just, a concentration just, camp just during could, the Civil can War. Can clarify something? Yeah, when you
2: say a rebel, you said there was mountain insurgents of in West what's now West Virginia, they were fighting the Confederate army, is that right?
1: there were like mountain i just want to people, know
2: what, what the rebel is in this case this is a rebel of the rebels yes right okay yeah. there were there were yeah. like
1: various yeah. <laughs> uh, there were white like uh you know what's his name uh, jp vance the guy like uh hillbilly elegy he talks yeah. about this yeah. how a lot of like the this sort of like the the mountain people they were like very much against the confederacy and against the not out of some, like, love for slaves or slavery or, like, a, a, hating slavery. They hated the, the elitist power structure, power structure yeah, the power of the South, structure. which was yeah. radically anti-democratic. Yeah. Like, the the big difference between North and South, everybody says, like, it's, like, slavery and stuff like that. That That's true. That was a big difference. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it also was just the the North was moving – more and more towards a kind of inclusive open representative democracy and the south was moving more towards being like a an autocracy run by a small elite of ultra rich like planters the planter mm-hmm. class right and they the planter class actively like they were like in league with like the russian market like they wanted they thought we should have most people should be serfs and we should have a small elite that runs things that mm-hmm. knows you know what's what yeah, that's right. interesting. I and I, they actually yeah. and and it's crazy because a lot of them ended up like coming up to Montreal and Quebec City. I mean, the Drinking assassination, the assassination of Lincoln yeah. was planned in Montreal, yeah. right? You know that, right? Like <laughs> I've
2: heard. Well, I've heard that there was. I read a. I have a book of the history of Montreal written in the 1960s. Which right? one? Um, by a woman. She was a librarian. It's very good. Very. Comprehensive, uh, and and um, it's it has these amazing lithograph. My mom got it for me, and uh, and in that book, it's very interesting because it's written right at the end of this time, right? So it's sort of like. But one of the things she talks about was how the, the Montreal became this place for rich Southerners to come to in the summer because it was cool back in the days before air conditioning, I'm, I'm guessing, right? They would come up here and there were places that sold orange tulips and stuff. It was this whole long thing of how the hotels would cater to them and all that stuff throughout the summer. They would stay here for the whole summer. Absolutely. They would live here. And yeah. they would go to the Charlevoix. Yeah.
1: <laughs> They would go to Quebec City. Like, often the Chateau Fontenac would be, like, half filled with, like, Southerners. Uh, is, from this the, in,
2: is this pre-Civil War times? I guess it must be. I can't remember yeah, from that pre book. and yeah. after. Yeah. Like, a
1: lot of – it was, <laughs> It was like, a really big deal. And what's interesting is, like, this is probably going to end up happening again, right? I think what is going – Again,
2: John, the, the equator is not going to get as, that much hotter According to the climate scientists. But
1: the southern United yeah. States is not at the equator. It's nowhere no, near the equator. No, I know, but equator. still, but
2: yeah, that's true. But it's, 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 the warming occurs more in the polar regions. Well, you know, it occurs it for, does. Like, you know, that's, this does, is what but I understand there's also, the, there's, the, yeah. there's
1: also this thing, right, where at the, the hottest parts of the equator, right, the hotter it gets, it causes this sort of going out. This is where you get like the Tropic of Cancer, the Tropic of Capricorn, right? The tropics, right? So you get like, all this hot air comes up from the equator and it goes up like this in plumes. And and all that like moist air comes crashing down here. And you mean here in the northern? No, no, America? like around the globe. Like it goes like, like okay. you can't see. Yeah. Those who are listening, I, I, you can't I'm, see my arms. Well, I okay, so but it goes I, up. In I, I want to make
2: sure this right? is clear. So, so it comes up from the equator to the atmosphere and goes north and south. Yes. How far?
1: well that 's the thing right yeah. right that 's the thing, <laughs> so it comes up and it, it lands right, so you get very wet areas where it lands, and then there's like a shadow right i don 't know if you' 've ever mm-hmm. been placed somewhere where there 's a rain shadow it's well very in, in british
2: columbia uh, like um British Columbia is a great yeah, example. Yeah, you, you, you cross yeah.
1: over there, and all of a sudden,
2: there's tumbleweeds and stuff. I was there oh, with my dad some years ago. Not just tumbleweeds. And it, on one side, it was raining, and then we go over; it's like 40 degrees on the other it's side of the mountain. It so it's yeah. completely weird. It's completely weird.
1: The first time, I mean, I've seen it in BC and Alberta, yeah. but the first time I really saw it was actually on an island off of, uh, like, off of Seattle in Washington State, in the states so uh the this woman that i was that I was with when in my early twenties uh my ex and stuff like that like her aunt and uncle had a place on an island off of Seattle in Washington, and we went there and it had big mountains up in the middle, and they had a rain shadow and it was the most amazing- like this was a mm. small island you could walk the whole thing in a day, and on one side of the island, it looked like uh, a rainforest it was like just like moss covering everything giant trees massive massive trees like just like unbelievable and then you went to the other side of the island and it was like it was tumbleweeds like, and, it was tumbleweeds yeah, yeah. and yeah. cactus it's yeah, amazing cactus yeah. In in Washington State, and you can there's there's cactus in Alberta and British Columbia, right? And there was cactus uh, everywhere, right? Cacti. And uh, and it was just unbelievable. And there was like lizards and rattlesnakes, and (laughs) it looked like Arizona. You know, on one side (laughs) of the island, there's little slugs all. Yeah, the other side it was like these giant slugs that are like six (laughs) inches long and like. But it but was but like but a rainforest. Just, just,
2: I want to understand this thing because I I, so I, I don't want to talk that much what, about what climate ch- here, but the, I do want to understand The reason why this climate point. change, yeah. the reason why this is
1: important, is because with the warming of the climate, this sort of like thing that happens from the equators out that creates the tropic of Cancer mm-hmm. and Capricorn, it's going to extend out. Yeah. So the water is going to like drop in different places. And what that so the Sahara means, might so
2: start to get rain, and other places will be no desert. No, no, no. no. It it's like it's
1: it's more like it'll yeah. go farther down south and north. So places that were just getting all this like this turbulence coming from the equator out and like landing that down get rain
2: that get rain.
1: It'll that go farther rain. north, right? And the farther des- south, it'll create a desert in between. So exactly. Like okay. So places like places like worried. places like <laughs> Italy and Spain and Portugal and Greece. Which used to be just at the right point where the stuff came down on them, now it's going to come a little bit farther north, mm. and so they're going to become Sahara-like, mm. right? Places that Sahara-like
2: or more like Nevada, because that's a very different thing. Sahara is like a really
1: Nevada-like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's not they'll as become bad, like but way, yeah. way, way more. So places where you could have, and you know, and the other the other side, as Gwen Dyer said twenty years ago, it means that all sorts of places like Like you know, Gwynne Dyer was one of the first people to be popularizing this idea. He said there's going to be climate change winners and losers. So he said like places like Germany, Russia, Canada are going to do extremely well. So it's going to be because they will suddenly have.
2: They're going to be making wine in England again. Yeah, they they places that places
1: (laughs) that you know because right now again Russia again it happened before you know Russia Canada. (laughs) We have lots of areas in our north that have, you know, fifteen, twenty feet of un like beautiful, beautiful topsoil. Yeah. That so could, was, be, could be agriculture. Uh could yeah. be like yeah. used it's for agriculture. Warmer. The only reason it's not used for it's agriculture now is because they don't have that magic number of frost free days. Right. They don't yeah. have enough like enough like summer. But they are gonna have summer now. Okay. So Putin knows this. Right, he knows this absolutely. That like, Russia is going to be a climate change winner. Russia is going to be amazing. They're going to be doing really, really well. Canada is going to be doing really well. Germany's going to be doing well. Yeah. Other places that are first world countries now are going to be reduced to third world countries. Most of Southern I Europe.
2: I, I I don't know. Like I I've, I'm very. It's not that I'm skeptical of the climate science per se, but if a place like Singapore is first world now, it's not likely to change because it has the people with those expertise and those. So if the, I mean, if the Dutch, they've been climate change losers for hundreds of years, but they've been dealing with it for hundreds of years. Like I, I, I just, I just think that what will create a climate change winner and loser is going to be more back to the population of what they're capable of adapting to, right? Um, and, of course, if we can grow further north, all the better, you know. But, so, Neil, Neil yeah.
1: Stevenson, the, <laughs> the sci-fi, hard science fiction yeah. writer who, who basically invented the idea of the metaverse, right? Yeah. His new book, his new novel, uh, it's really, really good. It's called Termination Shock. But he specifically deals with what you're talking about, but the brains so, uh, no the Dutch oh, the Dutch, and, yeah. and, well the brain that is the brain the so, Dutch
2: are they figured this stuff out right so in his
1: like, in his novel yeah. it's it's set like in the near future, and he says that uh, basically climate change keeps happening, and nobody's really doing anything to address it and so all of these like uh, countries and regions that are very close to sea level, like Singapore. Like the Netherlands, they deal with it. Uh, like Venice, yeah. they get together and form a global conspiracy. Oh, okay. And they call it—they call it like uh, Netherworld. So, yeah. like all the low people who are who are going to be hurting from climate change most, and they get so pissed off that like nobody's really doing anything about it. Mm. So they get together and they start engaging in in, in geoengineering. Yeah. And I, and Texas, okay. all right. Texas, Actually, yeah. all these like billionaires in Texas, like. Like Elon Musk and stuff like types, they get together and start actually like geoengineering the climate yeah. to like to stop climate change. When Dyer then, talked about that, and then too, China like, and like, India didn't... and all these other countries start like yeah. freaking out and trying to stop them from doing it. Yeah, that's interesting. But it's it's so freaky. But the one of the the queen of the Netherlands, Queen Saskia, she ends up being like the you know, the queen of netherworld. And they just they just start, like, an insurgency to uh, all over the world, like, all these, like, small island nations. They get together and they're like, yeah, these big countries, like, are just not paying attention to this. So we're just going to, like, hack the climate and make it happen right. ourselves. And Venice wants to break, like, separate from Italy because they're going to be underwater because Italy's not taking climate change seriously. And so increasingly... Uh, Texas, all these other like regions within countries break away from those countries and mm-hmm. form a compact with other people who uh, yeah. agree with them wow, and have this it 's so freaky get, so this is sort of
2: like a kind of a, a NATO but facing climate change yes yeah. absolutely yeah you know I just want to say something quickly I, I'm, uh, my brother i 'm very close with my brother, and he lives in San Francisco, which is a microclimate by the way. Um, and uh, um, he's a huge neil stevenson fan and i'm always telling him you know john hamer he's uh, he's like oh yeah you know so that's a little plug out to neil stevenson but i did want to return to this thing about eastern europe that you mentioned because w- w- when i lived in in uh, in slovakia i got really interested in in the culture as i said you know so uh, some of the people i had a friend there who's from australia but her parents were from slovakia so she said oh you have to read this book uh, called the Good Soldier Shveik. Have you ever read that?
1: Mm-mm.
2: Oh man, you have to read that book. It's just absolutely amazing. It's the, it's this guy. It was written sort of in the early twentieth century, around the time of the Great War, by a guy called Jaroslav Hasek or Hasek or I think it's Hasek, and he, and it's about this this Czech guy who's in the army and he. He he sort of he 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 seems to be really loyal to the Austrian he, uh, you know empire and he but he seems sort of like a simpleton like he's not very bright and and so you can never really figure out if he's sort of taken the piss out of the whole thing when he's like standing at salute because as a Czech you know how would he feel that much of a. A thing to the German nobility or whatever, right? But maybe some of them did, you know. So, and he goes on these adventures in um, into Russia. It's really amazing and stuff like that. And, this, and apparently, Yaroslav um, Hashek was a Prague. He was a uh, you know a bon vivant, I guess, one of these people who go goes out and drinks. And he was well known. And he was that was like the only book he ever really wrote. When was this written? In the early, around, but maybe World War One. Hmm. And it's really it's just, and but one thing that struck me so from this that is,
1: this is the Prague that produced Rainier. Well, Maria this is yeah, right. This is yeah. what I want
2: to get at is that that time, one of the. Then I also went and did a lot of reading about that part of the world, and and I found that you know if you go to Prague today, I love Prague. It's beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's. I haven't. It's, I really want to. you know. It's got this clock, you know, this famous thing, you know, St George's Square or whatever the thing comes out, and all this, and it's, the people are whatever. They're all very cool and everything, and it's wonderful, but doesn 't seem like it 's as interesting as it would have been a hundred years ago, or you know yeah a hundred years ago, right because if you go to the Prague of one hundred years ago, say one thousand nine hundred and twenty two you had the guy you 're talking about you had kafka you had you had guys like Yaroslav Hashek, i 'm not sure if he was still alive by one thousand nine hundred and twenty two but uh, and you had this kind of this mix i mean hashek just to and this really i thought years about this about how this this is a, This was a very cosmopolitan type of a, of a of a setting, as Montreal is too. So, just to give you an example of how it's akin to the way we function, right? Um, so, if you're reading the original Czech, hashek, you know he'll put in passages. Uh, he'll like he'll put in things that, you know, when he goes and talks to the landlady or something, he'll he'll just start writing in German because everybody speaks German, right? You know, and so the same way that. Um, uh, shout out to my friend, John Wolfrey, who published uh, East of the Big Q, uh, a book about being queer in Montreal. Uh, I was reading one of his stories the other day. And he so he when he's writing, he, you know, when it's going to be French, he just writes it up because, you know, I think he put some annotations for non-Quebecers. But, but the same sense of cosmopolitanism that you just it sort of assumed that people can, you know. And you so in, in that part of Europe, one of the things that has struck me for many years is how... Canada, the, the, the multicultural large empire, if you could call it that, reminds me a lot of the old Austrian empire because the old Austrian empire was very large by European standards. It had all these different ethnic groups and nationalities that were sort of partly loyal to the uh, – and, and at one point the, they had to actually create a, a dual monarchy – because the Hungarians were the largest of the or the most powerful ethnic groups but but it was sort of a coalition of these things so it was and it was very it didn't have the strongest army you know the Prussians had much better militarism and Russia was much bigger but it was very smart diplomatically how it kind of functioned in the world and it had this very delicate balance of the nationalities that it kind of allowed to function for a few hundred years up into the 20th century and that's how I see Canada. I see it as a very large, very fragile country. It wouldn't take much to blow this thing apart. You know, that's why I I get a little bit worried when you say oh, I don't care much about Canada. It's like we might care more about Canada if it if it were to get blown apart somehow through things that we couldn't even imagine what might happen there. Like, and believe me, I'm a proud Montrealer too, right? You know, so it's not that I'm not, I you know, I, I'm very proud of the cosmopolitan nature of Montreal, but I'm also very aware, as you often say, you know, you you talk about how you're very aware of how embedded you are in a community what is our community? I mean, we have our friends and our family, and that's sort of an obvious community, the place we live in. But there's also the larger communities that if we—if I don't feel a connection to people in other parts of my own country, I'm not so sure that's a good thing. I, th- I think I should try to do that, and they should try and do that with me. If it's, a, if it's a, you know, um, for two reasons. If the country's a good country, which Canada is, that's one reason to be nationalistic, is my country is a really good country. It's got all these you know uh, i don't know great social programs and all that kind of stuff another reason is because it's your country it's for the same reason you you love your mother you know <laughs> it's like or, or your, your grandparents or something it's like you know uh, they gave birth to you it's we wouldn't be here if this is what we came from now that could change we could create new countries we could split it into different nations or we could join the united states we, you know there's different ways we could be in the world but um you know, when, when I think about, you know, it reminds me of the, um, you know, that there's that great tweet by Jonathan Kay. You ever seen that? Where, I'm not sure if he wrote an article. It was all about how in a hundred years, you know, maybe the, the I, I wish I could quote it exactly, but you could imagine in a hundred years if British Columbia is sort of a... Um, Uh, a wailing wall of uh, guilt towards the native population or something like, I forget how we phrased it, but he said, I know something called Quebec will still exist, you know? So you think this is something, I mean, we're going through all these, uh, you know, these um, truth and reconciliation things to do with the residential schools, which I think is really important, right? But we, you know, because, I mean, it's an appalling history, right? If you, Mm -hmm. the more I learn about it, the more, Um, how do I put this? It's just so malevolent and awful, the stuff that I'm learning about that, you know, um, that I can be sure is true, you know, the solid sources, it's really bad, you know. However, how much guilt should I feel, because I should feel some as as a Canadian, can I sustain before I just dissolve into into it, right? Before I have to say, you know what? It's, it's, it's also a good country, and we also we have to have a kind of um, national mythology where we do ignore some things and emphasize the... We have to kind of brainwash ourselves, because any nation, no matter what it is, even if it's a small one, is partly a sort of fictional construction. Anything more than a few hundred people around you is going to be fictionally... Even you, if you say, oh, I'm a proud Montrealer, you know, there's like 4 million people in the Montreal area. Like you can't possibly know even a tiny fraction of them to to a point where you would want to die for that person, right? So you, I, I think I think you have – this is a long way of saying that um, the old the, – the Austria of the 100 years ago was fragile and it did get blown apart through – and and it didn't make it, and then there were all these other changes. And then the multi-ethnic states that were created were eventually blown apart again, from mostly from external forces. Now, I don't foresee how there could be such incredibly disjarring things to happen in this country, right? I couldn't imagine that right now, but that doesn't mean they couldn't occur, right? I don't know. But just to say that this is a very fragile country, very cosmopolitan, fragile country that uh you know that I think that we should think about that. And that might sound maybe a little paranoid. <laughs> no, know? that was know. actually like a very yeah. <laughs> beautiful
1: monologue. That was amazing. Oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I I, nice. I I think that's I think that's you know I think countries are maintained by those sorts those sorts of things, those kinds of loyalties. And when you look at you know like what Stephen Marsh talks about in his new book, like all that data on like the percentage of people in the United States who are in favor of separation, how would they do is, that though? That, uh, they, I not on because not I clear read it. because I listened on to your podcast and, and I was they're like, not clear on it at all. Uh, that makes me think it's, it's not that likely. It's it's very disjointed right? and it's very, yeah. but <laughs> there's definitely something like there's def- definitely something going on. That's true, and I don't yeah, think that kind of let's say fair thing. Um, can last for long. Like mm. one of the things that I always found, like when when my kids were young, one of the things I always noticed that was very different between uh, we we traveled. We lived in in Paris at one point for a while, and we we've, we traveled in different places. And one thing I noticed was that in Paris and in here in here, like if when our kids were really little, if they were like. You know, walking out of the park into the street, into traffic kind of thing. And there were, and we were like focused on another kid, and that kid is like walking off. People would immediately, like here, people will immediately discipline your kid. Like, Mm -hmm. and they're not even a friend of yours. They like come and like tell the kid to stop Mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. If the kid is like, uh, like screwing with a car's like windshield wipers or messy, somebody who's like a total like neighbor, stranger will be like, hey, like, they'll say, like, stop doing that. They'll stop them from doing it right away. Whereas, like, uh, in sort of, that's like... a good thing. In, I, I should go on the record. Yeah, I think that's good. I think it's because, completely because good. Kids should listen to that adults. Is, that and, is pro-social uh, yeah. behavior. Yeah, exactly. That is, yeah. like, you live in an actual community, <laughs> yeah. right? And people, like, on my street, if somebody is, you know, sick or old or, you know, they don't have... A, they're not, like, in good health or something's wrong with them... People will on my street, like here in Montreal, will automatically go and like, 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 shovel their walk and do the shoveling for them without even asking. It's just like, it's not done. Well, I'll do it for you. Like, people, when they can't get out of their car out from the snow, people who don't yeah, even know yeah. them will come and like, the snow help is, them, is, is, is a Help uniter them, of, help them uh, yeah. like, dig them out of the snow <laughs> and then help them push them out. And they won't wait for a thank you or anything. They just, just walk away yeah. <laughs> after it's done, right? That's community. Like people, yeah. I've had that so many times when, like, my kids were young, and when I was, I, I ran a day, day camp with my wife for years. And like, when kids would like wander off, immediately people would like like stop them mm. and would like yell at them. You know, a stranger's kid, right? In, so what? So in the, English Canada yeah, right. and in blue. Yeah. Blue Blue state America, people don't do that because they're afraid of being, like, called, like, a child molester or something. They just stay – they have a total Mm -hmm. kind of, like, libertarian, like, hey, like, it's not my – job Like, like, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility, and I don't want to get in trouble. Yes, he's beating up his girlfriend, but I'm not going to say anything. Like, here, people stick their nose in your business, like, but in a good way. It's like it's a in a pro social way, like they they have a sense of community, Mm. and I love that. And I think you know what, what Jonathan Kay and Jonathan K he's been on the podcast many times, and we've talked about this many times. He believes this too that, like, you have to have a sense of uh, a new like yeah. an us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to have a sense of like us and that I have a responsibility to other people. If it's just, that,
2: that's everything I'm trying to talk about here Yeah, in some senses, I think apologies for interrupting. Yeah. But yeah. I feel like that's no. Yeah. yeah. Well, shoot. I mean, that's, that's uh, what I'm trying to say is that again, I, like if I look into, you know, to, to people's eyes and because I sometimes I was even, even when this past time I came up with this idea, I I would say to them, I'd say, well, so your parents were immigrants. And sometimes they'd say, yeah, sometimes they'd say, Oh, well, my father was, you know, born uh, abroad and my mother was born here. Then I would say to them, well, in reality, we are basically identical. My mother was an immigrant. My father was native born and I'm born here. So, uh, so I, I, and and I also, you know, I say like, if, if there's something that bonds us, right, if, and, and. It's, I mean, if you have a society where you, you want people to be free, to choose, you know, so people can choose to what, what they want to do, because freedom is a really important thing. And then you also have an idea that if you're born there, uh, you're a, you're automatically a citizen. You, is there a risk that that, I mean, you're calling it libertarianism, right? I'm not sure that's the most appropriate uh, use of the term, but I don't know. I'm not a libertarian myself, but... At what point does that start to lead to a, um, you know, Canada's like a hotel, right? And so I'm in my room, and you're in your room, and, you know, people are, you know, you and I, were friends, so, you know, we would help each other out and all that, but we don't bother with, you know, the, the people down the hall or whatever, they're doing their thing. At what point does that become, this is, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, I think yeah. the answer is going to you know. be
1: very apparent in the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Because... I think what Stephen Marsh is saying is, is absolutely right. He says, like, you know, one of the basic premises of his book, as written by a Canadian, is he says, look, the reason why the Canadian nation state exists is because of the first American Civil War. That's true. So yeah. the, the whole reason we had Confederation <laughs> was because – They were
2: all freaked out. Yeah, the, This yeah.
1: giant, powerful country <laughs> to the south of us. Had a crazy yeah. civil war. Yeah. It was very violent. It killed six hundred and ten thousand people, and they uh, they thought, okay, in the face of this chaos and this like dangerous threat, we need to be united. So mm-hmm. we need to get our shit together because like these mm-hmm. people in the south are crazy and dangerous. So confederation happened in eighteen sixty seven. Very much in the shadow of the American Civil War. It's contemporaneous. I mean, they were doing it while the Civil War was on. Like uh, all those No, conferences, no, no. They right? were doing it because. <laughs> yeah. No, because yeah. of the American Civil <laughs> right. War. Yeah. It was specifically That's like, true. okay, yeah. <laughs> we need to get our shit together because of this crazy <laughs> yeah. threat to the south of us. So his point is there's going to be another American Civil War. And Canada is going to have to get its shit together, or else yeah. it will be ruined and and walked right over.
2: I, I didn't take that away because I listened to your podcast with him. I I actually specifically wanted to avoid that because I was very confused. I should maybe read his book, but he he points out all these things that seem obviously true to me. Right? You got all these. Uh, you know, people out of, you know, these kind of differences and the Wokus and James Lindsay fighting wokism and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm following it like you are and everything, but I don't understand. Is it going to play out in some cyber realm Are people get like the, the there has to, if, if a civil war is going to take place, I mean, wars are over territory usually, So is it going to be a war? Is there going to be some sort of like I didn't I can't understand exactly how he's proposing it's going to play out. Maybe if you read the book, you could explain it to me. Is there going to be some sort of, uh, you know, um, sort of free states of United States of people in Michigan and so on who declare themselves like Trumpists? And then on the coast, they're going to say, no way. We're with Biden. And then what about cities like Chicago that are in the middle of that where most of the people there are? Like I don't – it seems like there's no way – I mean you do have the blue and the red states, right? But even within those states – I mean have you ever heard of Victor Davis Hanson? Mm-hmm. Right? A very interesting in – California, yeah. A Californian – I mean an incredible historian and everything and also very you know right wing and all that. But – he comes from Central California. Listen to how he talks. I heard one of your guests say something about how people in Central California that was like talking this kind of southern drawl and my brother lives in San Francisco and nobody talks like Victor Davis Hansen. So is it gonna be like is California gonna split like I I don't understand. Are the state boundaries not gonna be important in that? Like it's it's just it's very unclear to me how that would play itself out. The the first civil war. There was a very clear – I mean there was the Mason-Dixon line. There was slavery, right? And there was the expansion to the West. There was the argument about what to do with that. So that there was this clear disagreement about this, um, this thing that could be – people could split themselves. In theory, the Confederate states could have succeeded even though they were um, – I mean, it was, you know, they, they, they had less industrial power. Their population, I believe, was lower. They, their army wasn't as strong. They, 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 you know, there was the same way that Germany, uh, Nazi Germany, um, ha- was at a disadvantage against the Allied powers for a variety of other reasons to do with that. But Nazi Germany or the Confederate States could have won, and they could have said, okay, we are now this p- political entity, you know, from Florida to whatever, I don't know, where is Virginia or whatever, and we have a border. What I don't understand with Stephen Marsh is I just don't, I can't, I'm trying to imagine what it's going to be. Is it just going to be a bunch of these balkanized archipel, I never know how to pronounce that word in English, the, uh, the, the like uh, uh you know like the goo yeah, yeah, I know. It's, is it gonna, uh, is it going to
1: be like, archipelago? She, the archipelago, yeah. thank yeah. you. Yeah. Is it just yeah. going
2: to be like that? Is it going to be just these like okay, so there's like these Well, he says that there'll, be big, themselves there'll be big they'll be big
1: population transfers. So, and that's already happening, right? You've had like uh, a really kind of significant transfer of I think it's like 5% in the last 5 years have people Texas, from Texas moving yeah. to California no people from the other California way, yeah, moving right. to Texas the rogans so and
2: the elon musk the, going to
1: yeah. uh, <laughs> it's been going back and forth so like if you are like if you're very progressive and you know gay or whatever like in Austin a lot of people just end up uh wow, move to New York or San Francisco and then people who are like the Victor David Hansen types they're like yeah let's move to Victor Davis Hanson is
2: sure. never going to leave his family. No, farm, he won't. Right? But so, but,
1: but there, you would get these big like see, population that, that, I just, shifts. It,
2: I, sorry to interrupt. I just want to – because that's what I'm trying to get at. The hole in the theory is that you know, in, in, what would happen to those internal places like upstate New York or or um, you know that, that are that don't that are that are out that are in the blue areas. But the people are like, I mean, it would be surrounded, so you'd have Vegas on one side, and that would, would be presumably a blue place, and then you, or Tahoe or something like that, and then you'd have this like, what would they like? How would that work? Are they just gonna like? Would California become two different states, and there'd be you'd have to you know like? I you just, I said, just it don't understand. It'd be the understand. same as like Is,
1: partition in South but Asia. But you break it down. You had India and, and Pakistan, and, and suddenly. You get, like, Popular. a couple million people on either side who are, like, stranded. Well, they force people to and move. And they either get killed they or they They force move, them to move, right. right. And you get, so, like, no. this... And that that's happened all over Greece the world. and Turkey, too. Yeah, like, yeah and you get, right. like, these population transfers. And so his his point is, like, mm-hmm. you're going to have... Uh, these these crazy kind of changes. So, he, and so just so,
2: just to be clear, I want to understand his prediction. He's predicting something like what happened between Greece and Turkey, or India and Pakistan, where there would be a border created, say between California and um, I don't know Nevada or something, and then and there would be some sort of Victor Davis. They would show up at his house and say, "Look, you got to move to Nevada." You know, not necessarily. Of, like, he, that, he thinks he know, thinks
1: the, he gives a number of scenarios, but he says probably what's going to happen with the states. It's going to turn into four countries. California is going to become a separate country. It will automatically right away become the richest country on planet Earth. Um, I want to return to that Texas, point in a minute. But, Texas yeah. will become uh, <laughs> a separate country. California and Texas will be fine. And then the rest of the United States will split roughly according to the old Mason-Dixon line. And you'll have population transfers between the four and
2: how are those going to
1: play out? Those popular, the North, uh, like, I mean,
2: like, like what's going to happen if, if someone is like a Trump guy and he's living in New York or something? And he's got his or something like, well, what's going to happen to
1: that guy? He'll is he just move gonna move to Texas or the so South? People
2: will, or they'll just be frustrated and live in this place that they don't probably like.
1: not. They'll move, like, probably they'll move. Yeah. And you know, and will
2: Donald Trump is a New Yorker, interestingly, and, right? and <laughs> so he I, says, yeah. you know,
1: so what's going to happen? is suddenly people are going to realize how much the federal system like benefited them mm-hmm. in various ways so little so he says like you know yeah. for instance texas if you build a wall around texas tomorrow texas will be fine they have tons of food tons of agriculture you know the agriculture they have lots of tech they they can they have lots of energy resources they'll be fine. texas can be a separate country and automatically be one of the top 10 richest countries on planet earth they'll be fine california will be amazing um the northern uh the northern states together will be like kind of like sort of like the uk or canada like they'll be fine but they're not going to be especially dynamic and wealthy the south the 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 people like Mm -hmm. the southern states they are going to have an Unbelievably rude awakening because he he says, like, these are the most deluded people in the United States by far. Like, South Carolina is a giant welfare state, but they don't realize it. Hold on a second. I want like, to ask, they I get, ask you something. They get, they Just, pay all yeah. of their, their roads are paved, their buildings work, their industry because they get massive transfer payments have, from the federal government does
2: that exist because i mean he said that during the. Is that true it's canada has a true. system of transfer payments between provinces the united states has i've a never massive, heard of that on they the have united.
1: a massive system of transfer payments and mm. the thing is is I, and you know the first person i heard about this was in my 20s john mccain started talking about that and he said he because he as a representative from arizona he said look we have a real like conflict between our individualist like capitalist libertarian values and the reality the reality is right now we are a welfare state we are like one of those you know western european countries during the marshall plan in the 50s we are the only reason we exist at the standard of living we have is because we are having our our lights are on because of people in New Jersey and New York and California who are paying for our stuff. Right? We are deluded. We think that somehow like we're these rugged individualists that are running. We're not. We are like a kid, a rich kid, who's got his condo and his car paid by his dad. And has all of his stuff paid, but somehow yeah. imagines that he's like a rugged individualist. He's like, we need to start developing industry and stuff in Arizona so that we actually are what we think we are. Because right now we're not. We yeah. are like diluted like, deluded rich kids who are like, see, daddy pays for everything. You, you see, what And with South that, Carolina, all these Trumpy, like, red states in the South, see, they are so... They're going to be fucking third world countries. No, but the thing is... Overnight. The, is, the people
2: who voted for Trump... You see, this, this theory, there's so many holes with that. The people who voted for Trump, I mean, in 2016, not in 2020, it's a very different story. I don't want to get into that, but the kind of disenfranchised people in Ohio, they're already living in a kind of third world. They're, they've already seen all their fat, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're all addicted to, you know, all that kind of stuff. All that, like that, that's already the case for them. So I, like, I mean, it would, maybe, would it get worse? Maybe. It also assumes that people, the theory there is somehow that there's, first of all, that government directs the economy in such a way. So just, I wanted to return to this thing about California. So, I remember years ago, many years ago, uh, I learned that fact that if California became an independent country, be the world's fifth largest economy immediately and all this. And it was one of those things that I I hear and I'm like, Oh, kind of like the thing about, I was telling you about the 80 20 thing that when you first hear it, you go, Oh boy. that, And then when you think about it, you start to think, Hmm. And there's one of the problems again, going back to the 80 20 thing is why is California so advanced now? Um, partly there are some things that could exist under any circumstances like the movie industry, right? For sure. One of the reasons that it has this enormous tech advantage is because it has these enormous investment from the U.S. military to develop military technology. It has had that for many generations, right? So you've got U.S. Army and the same is true in Massachusetts as well. You've got these robotics companies and so on, you know. So that... You know so if, if, if that has led to all this tech boom and Silicon Valley, which it probably is partly responsible for, how would that work if, you've, if the United States is five different countries and there's no more like like the, the whole reason why Cal- well not, not the whole reason I don't want to exaggerate that california it's it 's sort of like can if you took Canada and you basically eliminated all the enormous resources we have, all the wood and the oil and the hydroelectric power we we would we would not be because we seem to have a very creative and dynamic population and we can do stuff like video games and stuff but i I would imagine we'd be something like Portugal or some not a poor country but probably nowhere near the level of affluence that we are i mean if you look at the i mean just petroleum alone in canada is i mean if you you could track the us dollar uh, excuse me the canadian dollar on if i've looked at the graphs and the price of oil i mean it you know it, it literally goes up and down with the price of oil so but is the, and so that i think the same principle applies to california California would not necessarily become a basket case of poverty but would it be would it continue to be the world's fifth largest economy? Yes. I don't know. I mean I'm because sure. Apple, Maybe. Facebook, Google,
1: yeah, they're but, but, all based no, there and they the don't future, need don't they don't need the land. They don't need the trees or the the mining. Uh, no, no, you like you yeah. no, you're
2: misunderstanding my point. That, that that they origin Apple and the, first of all the, the, those corporations have no national um, connection. That's one of the problems with the, the the sort of globalist corporate thing is that, you know, if things were to go wrong in California, I mean, look, Elon Musk already moved. Removed? Didn't he move Tesla to uh, mm-hmm. to Texas? Right. So, you know, they can move around. And so, and and the, my 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 proposition is more going forward into the future. If the United States is is broken into you know these um, these different countries, and so what's the U.S. Army if it's not the U.S. Army, and then it's not doing all this investment, and then over time, Calif- again, California would remain. Ex- I, I you know I'm not saying it would be poor. It's just that I'm not sure that it would continue to be. Because that's one thing that still continues. A lot of the the, the 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 sources of that now maybe that's already served its purpose and that doesn't matter anymore and it's already got like like my theory may have a hole that yeah that was important in the twentieth century to develop Apple and Facebook and now Apple and whatever you know all these corporations that they're they're in California and they're going to stay there and they're going to keep it rich. I don't know, uh, but I just I, I just think that it the the whole thing with Stephen Marsh's thing is that. It seems to the, the it seems to assume that certain things would remain the same under radically different circumstances. Do you see what I mean? Like in the sense that, just that's just one example I can think of, right? About the, the investment, the military investment would not obviously not be the same if there's no more U.S. Army or if it's the California Army or like mm-hmm. you know, um, it would not have. And again, it goes back to the eighty twenty thing. You know, California is, you know, it's, it's, it sure, it's, it's way more productive than Iowa. And we can all laugh at all the corn farmers and all the people on opioids and blah. You know what I mean? We can, I, sure, fine. I'm a city guy. We can do all that and we can, you know, we can call them deplorables and everything. I'm being facetious here, mm-hmm. but just, just, okay. but just to say that does, that there's still something to do with the cohesion of the country that must be part of the reason it's, like like you can imagine that um some places would be richer if they were independent, some would be poorer, but probably most would be poorer. Generally speaking, economic unions tend to lead to more prosperity for the people within as as a general I, axiom. I don't
1: know of any right? example where that's not true. Um yeah. They, they usually so, lead to more prosperity. You know that's a good question. But yeah. If you but if you have a situation like it used to be the case that, you know, uh Certain agricultural regions like fed the cities, right? Yeah. That's yeah. increasingly not true. So who's increasingly feeding Cal-
2: California is a huge agricultural producer. Yes. By the way. So um, like
1: like Texas, uh, you so know Texas. one of <laughs> one of the good thought experiments that I think it's good to yeah. do is like you imagine a situation, and I'm not saying it's not like flawless as a strategy, but you imagine okay if you built a wall of, around this community. How would would they do? Yeah, right. That's a good thought. If you wall, if you built a wall around Japan, there would be like, like riots and starving within like a couple of weeks. Japan is like helpless without trade Are you because sure about, i just yeah, w- i just want to push japan back a bit there because not,
2: it survived for hundreds of hundreds of years being very isolated
1: with a very small um, population yeah and they can yeah, that's they true. That's they right now like japan imports the vast majority of their food and natural mm. resources they they can the they resources. can't survive they can't survive without like just like getting like stuff from the outside, China is really has, has for the first time in the history thousands of years of civil, it's Chinese not civilization. On the edge of starvation. They are like yeah. actually trying really hard to kind of set up all these relationships in Africa and the rest of Asia and all over the world. They're buying up tons of natural resources in China. But what would happen if you go all around States, China for lack China of... would be so screwed so fast because they have poisoned. Like yeah. they China used to be able to support itself for thousands of years. They can't anymore. They have poisoned okay. their rivers, destroyed their rice paddies. If I they, if I could just you know, push back very Texas, quickly, Texas, California, yeah. Yeah, sorry, these said, places, yeah. they could survive no problem. Yeah. They produce so much food, they have all sorts of energy resources. Like they're they're fine, right? Yeah. Uh, they could they could feed themselves. They could meet all of their needs, um, and that's a, that's an interesting sort of thought experiment.
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's that's a that's a really good point, actually. About um, yeah, because I have a theory. I, I have a, a this is this reminds me of another theory. I have a, people who talk about how, you know, Canada, for example, and Scandinavia are so rich because of all the resources, which is definitely true, right? Like in the sense that. Um, if if you go back, if you read the days of you know if you lived in in, in Quebec in, in 1680 or something like that, it was an extremely poverty stricken place to live. If you compared it to, I mean, you would live most of the year in this freezing cold winter hoping that the stores you had down in your, in your cellar were going to make it yeah. to when, and you'd try and hunt and so on to make up the difference. It was slightly less miserable than in France because there was a smaller population, right? Um, because France had a higher population. So if you look at calories and all that kind of stuff, but, so I have this theory that in, 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 um, times, you know, in, in, in an era when, Trade is very different, very difficult to do over long distances. Countries that are temperate or hot, the population is more likely to be to live. I wouldn't say luxurious, but you know, you, you can you can have fresh fruit year round. You can you know, you don't. You know what I mean? Like because if if you eliminate importation into this country. Just walk into a supermarket in January. I would tell my students this sometimes. Just it's the most miraculous. I think it's kind of like that Louis C.K. routine when I go into a You know, when he says people when they're on planes should be like, you know, this is so fucking amazing. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's kind of how I feel in a supermarket sometimes when I see... And I always like to look, where does this thing come from? It comes from fucking El Salvador or the Dominican Republic. Think of how far away that is, and it's a fresh, like it's like somebody picked it off a tree like a day ago or two, whatever. And so, like, we would be very, if you take your analogy here, this, this, uh, you know, this. uh, So what that means is, okay, so we live in a globally integrated world, generally speaking, despite all these nationalists. Now, that's not going to change even if the United States splits into these five countries. So presumably these countries are going to trade with each other and they're going to trade with the rest of the world, presumably. Like, I'm I'm just trying to imagine what this looks like because honestly when I hear Stephen Marsh talk about this, it just sounds absurd to me. And and so I'm really trying to understand. So we have these five countries. Are they constantly fighting? Because they don't have walls around each other. Are they fighting wars with each other all the time? Are they just sending f- twitter posts war flame wars at each other like what i'm really i mean it sounds like i'm I'm sort of making a i'm I'm really not trying to to make it sound like I'm caricaturing his argument, but it sounds just like I can't follow. How it's supposed to work and how long that's going to happen. It it, it seems more to me like it's just going to be some sort of a temporary thing where people, they go through. I mean, you know, George Friedman. You ever read George Friedman? Mm -mm. He's a very interesting geographer who's written all these books about uh, international conflicts and things like that. And he... He's written some interesting books about the future, of the next hundred years, and what's going to happen geopolitically. His ideas seem a lot more plausible to me than Marsh's when I read those. But um, one of the things he talks about is how the United States goes through these, I think it's 50-year cycles. Like if you go back to its founding, you see these crises every half century or so that go on for about a decade. The Civil War falls exactly at about almost a hundred years after their foundation right it was in one of these the 1930s there was a well there was an economic depression and then the 1970s right you've got this i mean what we're, what we're going through right now in terms of these culture wars and and uh, also the 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 return of these bad economic ideas like minimum wage and all this kind of stuff feel and the you know we see inflation starting to happen it feels like this is the 1970s again and you know and and so we're going through one of these cycles and how long is that going to last how much damage is it going to have could the united states have i'm sure i wouldn't be surprised if you, if you went back to the 70s people were predicting it was going to blow apart then I don't no, know. No, they were not. So what so what I mean, did people but, think was going to happen if those inflation's trends
1: happening in the states it's not happening in most places. If and those that's the states if those flooded the market with money. If those
2: trends had continued in the 70s of the of the weather underground and the riots and the you know and, and all that stuff. If it hadn't, you know, like what if it had like cuz that's basically what the thesis of if, every theory of something going to crap is always like if current trends continue which is Stephen Marsh? Like, if these things continue to happen, right? Because if if they're if they're reversing, then it's okay. Or if they stop, then it's things are going to right themselves, right? So, I, is is if in fact he's right and things continue to get that bad, that could happen clearly, right? Well, I it's, mean, he he says that
1: like you know, if you look at at one point in his but book, they didn't in the seventies and they didn't goes, in the thirties and even up, in the Civil War, if you they writer add all it, right? the people involved yeah. in the Weather Underground. Uh, involved in the Black Panther Party, all the various radical groups in the United States, if you add them all up <laughs> it's a few uh, in people. the 60s, yeah. 70s, it really <laughs> yeah. only gets up to like maybe 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. And he says, like, now just a conservative estimate of how many people who are involved in anti government militias. It's like about seventy-five to 90,000 people. Yeah, interesting. It's way, the way, way grown, more. But that's it's more of a way, trend. way yeah. more <laughs> than there was at the height of the 60s, 70s Crazy. So it's
2: worse than the 70s. It's Although way, way worse. The economic worse. stuff is not as bad. It was, and,
1: yeah. and at the time, yeah. the number of people who were like comfortable and, in fact, enthusiastic about the idea of like the country splitting up, it never topped 5%. Now it's twenty five percent of Americans Except say they don't
2: know how. That's that's that that's the that's the thing that doesn't make any sense to me. It's like like if you tell me what percentage of Quebec of people in Quebec, whatever, uh, want Quebec to be a separate country, and that's twenty five percent or forty percent or whatever it is, we know what Quebec looks like, and we know what that country would look like. It has borders, and and you know people you can argue about you know would Westmount partition and all that kind of stuff, but most people. I think would accept it after if it were to vote that way, right? Whereas this thing doesn't seem to have. I mean, it has those. I, I get those geographic regions. I mean, is that? I, I don't know. I I, I can't. I, I don't know. I, I'm maybe he's right. Maybe I'm just um, um, what's the word? Uh, I'm doing like a Pollyanna. Is that the right word? You know, that, well I, I, mean, being I think you know if you look something.
1: at like when yeah. when when the Roman Empire collapsed. Or if you look at other plenty of empires that have collapsed, generally speaking, like you get a bunch of chaos, but the big cities like Alexandria and Egypt, or you know, like like the big cities, they sort of like retrench and they have they have a staying power. So places like Paris, you know, for instance, you know, it's in it's a river city like Montreal, uh, which you know, it's on a hill. You know, the, defendable, you know, right. it's defendable, right. and they sort of like retrench, and the cities survive. You know, places like Venice, Florence, but what do uh, you mean Paris, survive? They I mean, survive the, the collapse of an empire, but everybody suddenly, survives the collapse. No, I mean. No, I mean the populations em- usually dropped. Well, I mean just to
2: speak, just to speak to. I mean, the, the, when the Ro- first of all, the Roman Empire took a very long time. It actually took us several centuries to actually the, the Western Roman. It, it didn't even collapse in, in in what was you know what was in, in the Eastern Roman Empire till the Turks finally blasted it apart. So. This this thing, maybe we're living in faster times and that thing could go more quickly, but it's you know, it would strike me that that would take a longer period of time. The other thing, just to return to George Friedman, is he points out in in lots of his works how people have been predicting this collapse of the United States literally right back to when it was founded i mean that you know i mean it was right there's there's always been an anxiety among uh, american intellectuals and their defense experts and everybody that uh, this is it you know even if you even when the height of american power in in, in the 1950s when when you you had the united states was 50% of the world's gdp and japan and germany were in ruins and all this even then you go back and you read these things and they're like oh my god the soviet like this is going to be the end they're gonna, you know right and so you think and you wonder too going back to your theory about um uh, you know you need a nut of wackos to maintain a uh, a nut of it could be that it's the reason it's been able to survive and grow and be so successful is is that fear that sense of anxiety motivates the country into. And so why would that not rally itself now at some point? Like, why would that, um, why is this different from 1950 from 1850 from, you know, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's, it, if it's, it is it's different.
1: I, you know. I mean, I'll, I'll give Stephen Marsh's answer. <laughs> and he basically says that the difference is that, uh, for instance, if you take American president as a, a occupation and you list it as an occupation, it's the most dangerous occupation <laughs> in the United States. It's more dangerous than deep sea fishermen, than like lumberjack, than like like I mean police has been police since, whine like crazy in the States about oh, we do such a difficult job. They actually don't like the the chances of you dying in the line of duty as a cop you're way down in the thirties and forties on the list. Firefighters are way higher than cops, yeah, that's interesting, but yeah. th- by far the most difficult. It's a small, it it's a small, a small uh, yeah, sample, it's a small size, sample so, size. But, you know, but 45 of them are 46, one in eleven right. American presidents has been assassinated, actually. and how many have attempted? Reagan they attempted. Like many more have yeah. been attempted. They're so, also
2: left-handed. Did you know that? Yeah, they're, 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 I heard I'm that, left-handed, yeah. so I'm. I always I'm very proud of being yeah. left-handed. That's a <laughs> weird thing to be proud of. Fucking but, freak. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, like, the, <laughs> so, like, like, but they they. Totally, like, and so he says, uh, actually, the big difference now is that throughout American history, even with, like, Lincoln, during, you know, like, right after the Civil War, people had national mourning. Like, whenever this American president attempted to be assassinated or assassinated, it, like, had this national mourning. And he said, that is one of the big differences now, that if—
2: There hasn't been an assassination,
1: He goes, if, like, Trump was assassinated, half the country would have been happy. And he goes, now, if Biden was assassinated, half the country would be happy. He said, this is a massive change. Because for most of American history, like, if when the president, everybody, like, put down their partisan hat and was super sad. Like, people who didn't vote for Kennedy and hated Kennedy were incredibly sad when people were yeah. who didn't who hated Reagan were crying when he was when there was the attempt on his life. <laughs> and he said, that has changed. Well, I mean and has now, it has it
2: changed? I mean, if you were to look at those opinion polls, the one thing that struck me when you were saying that was that those are the opinion polls people are saying that. We haven't actually done that. So just one thing that strikes me is I remember seeing it was a video of Trump when he was getting, you know, he do the. You were complaining about his helicopter interviews. Like, <laughs> I love that because I love the way he was out there doing those interviews all the time with people. I thought it was really cool because he was out there. But at one point he was getting off a plane or something, and he, and and when he got off, there was a reporter there who, who said who who said to him that, um, who's that judge Ginsburg? Who's that that left leaning judge who died? When he was president, Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg, Ginsburg who's yeah. obviously not a person who would have appreciated Trump, and pr- Trump probably didn't, you know, given their politics. But the reporter said, "Oh, have you heard?" And he was very obvious from seeing his reaction that he had not heard, because he was, oh, you know, and he and it was obvious that he, he, he just for in that moment he thought, and this is an, very interesting to me because everyone thinks he's a monster, you know, but he, he was obviously. Um, you know, sort of thinking just from his face anyway. I mean, I could be wrong about this, but he said, Oh, and he said, Oh, that's really terrible news. And she, she was a great blah, blah, and all this stuff and all the things you wouldn't expect him to do. Right. You know what I mean? Because he's supposed to be Don- Well, he is Donald Trump and he's supposed to, be- he's supposed to represent this whole, you know, screw the other side kind of thing, you know? And so it makes me think if Trump had been assassinated or if Biden were to be assassinated now, would those people who claim they're all going to be dancing in the streets, would they really be? Some, of them, some of them might be. Some of them I might be. I think they would. But I, I'm, I not, remember, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm I not friends. sure. I think some of them might be all of a sudden in that moment, the same way that Trump, when it actually was just thrown onto him, I think a lot of people would. It's sort of like when, when the country's attacked. If You know, I, I'm convinced if there was another 9-11, all this stuff would just disappear, like, tomorrow. I don't of, like,
1: know. I'm, I, I mean, I, I hope you're right, but, like, yeah. uh, Stephen Marsh's argument is that that's... <laughs> something has changed that's, where... Well, that's his claim. Like, like, he could be right, he's like, I'm not, know, I'm not saying he's he wrong. He goes, yeah. like, he says, you know, the big difference between, like, the the FLQ and, let's say, like, Hamas or, like, the the PLO is that, like, when one of them, you know, kills a bunch of people, they're, like... It's like a party in the village. Like, oh, it's so cool! You killed a bunch mm-hmm. of yeah. You killed some Jews. That's amazing, right? Like they like there's a big party like for the. Whereas like what killed the FLQ the in Quebec was that when they started actually killing people, the, the population, population was like fuck that. They were mm-hmm. like not they they started informing on people who had safe houses. They were like yeah we don't like that at all. You've crossed a line. Yeah, and true. and he's, and Marsh's point is that for the longest time, Americans, when the shit hit the fan, they would, like, get behind each other. But something has changed, and they don't now. Yeah, I and now, like, I, I remember saying this to, like, one of my friends in Baltimore when he was, like, putting on his Facebook picture, like, not my president. And I said, like, okay, well, he was, you know, Trump was elected fair and square, um, and do you really want to say not my president? Cause like, if you say that, yeah, that opens you're the door. like, yeah. that means that the next time there's a democratic president, people well, that, can say, well, not my exactly president. That's exactly What happened? In like, fact, that, that, is, that that's,
2: is in fact, what yeah, happened pretty like, much. That's yeah. Really, yeah. really.
1: Yeah. And he <laughs> yeah. was like, well, you know, I know you didn't like Stephen Harper. And yeah. I was like, he yeah, I hated minister, him. Though. But he yeah. was a hundred percent my prime minister yeah. and I would die for him and I supported him completely. He's my prime minister. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. I have no like I would mm-hmm. not in any way like not support so, him. So you think
2: something has fundamentally changed. Something there, has
1: so. changed yeah. Yeah, and wonder, people just maybe. are are kind of like because you you have to sort of have disagreements about stuff, but once you decide things by an election or something like that, you have to get behind, you know, who you've decided to support, and you can't... Uh,
2: so so you, you sound like you're along the Bill Mar Bill Maher has this thing where he keeps talking about January 6, 2025, you know, when... He, he says Trump's going to run again, and then he's going to lose, and there's going to be – he's going to declare that he won anyway, and that, that's going to lead to the – and he could be – that kind of sounds like a long-year well, line. Well, the pattern we were, is there. Right. I mean, it, you look at – It's interesting how it, always, it always, always comes
1: back to Trump becoming ever, Hitler in the future. It's kind but, of funny. But the thing you know? is, the pattern is there, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, when – Maybe when, he will. When yeah. Trump – like, when, uh, when The Apprentice didn't win an Emmy, <laughs> yeah. he said publicly – I remember – because like yeah. I like lots of friends who watch the show. He said it was rigged. Right, right. And he said if I don't win, it it was rigged. He's been saying this his right. whole life. It's like it's, a, it's an amazing whenever, way to whenever do it he doesn't it, because, win. Because, well, you know, whenever he doesn't but when win he wins, it's not rigged. No, right. yeah, that's but interesting. It's he's a very been smart saying tactic. this forever. Yeah. Like <laughs> if I lose, it was rigged. If yeah. I win, that was good. Like. So he's been doing this forever. There's no reason so you think, so why to, a guy in his seventies is going to suddenly change. I, I don't doubt that, but
2: but but do you think he's going to come back and actually be able to mount a campaign big enough where he could even claim that with any credibility? Yeah, is the Republican Party going to take him back? Is that I, I don't know. They I mean, don't
1: have anything else. Yeah, you know, I mean, they don't have I mean, anything else. Like right now, I guess we'll see. You know, they don't have like right now. I mean, you you look at the Republicans that have. Dared to defy him. Um, of the fourteen Republicans that defied him, uh, twelve of them have been voted out of office. So that's mm-hmm. a pretty good batting average. Like they've they've primaried those people and got when rid of say them. Voted
2: out of their whatever their I don't know They've who these been primaried are. out
1: of their positions. But that means and now they they're trying to the do that to in, Cheney. In the constituency. Like did you see their announcement today? No, I didn't. Like know. oh my god. It's like absolutely insane. Yeah. Like they basically have said any Republican who like in any way challenges the idea that Trump actually won the election and like they have to be we have to throw all of our resources behind ruining them. Okay. And this was—I mean—there was an announcement yeah. today, like, and it was all. Over, but I like,
2: thought—I mean— isn't he excommunicated
1: from? I don't really understand. Absolutely how. not. So they—he's he's,
2: still—he's still a member of the
1: Republican Party. They are. He okay. has like. I just because he's not on Twitter anymore. I like it's sort of like because they disappear. kicked him off.
2: Yeah, like I, I have a friend of mine who follows him, and he's a big Trump. Uh, he's a younger guy who. Uh, was a former student of mine, and he was showing me all these videos on the internet. I was like, I thought that guy was gone, you know like i don't i don't know i don't follow that 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 much, but i just i i don't know i mean i'm just not sure how to
1: imagine that would be
2: but uh yeah i don't know i don't know I'm, yeah someone, but if it you know. if
1: all this breaks up we're going to have a very strange situation up here in Montreal because like canada is is going to be thrown into Because right now, I mean, like it's like eighty percent of our trade is with the United States, so if the United States becomes a basket case, uh, we're not going to be able to like we're going to be you know in a lot of trouble. We're going to have to figure out how we you know how we do things. But
2: well, uh, I mean that you know that uh, we've done it before. Although, yeah, you can't really. I'm trying to think. There's no historical analogy for that because the entire entire history we had another protector now we've got them so if we don't have them, like the 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 we have a strange relationship with the united states because we effectively we allowed them to take over our, the role we don't have our military is not strong enough to um to really defend ourselves now uh, and we haven't taken my brother has this really interesting theory that even if you're a small country and you're next to a more powerful country, you should not say to yourself, oh, well, then just let them protect us and, like we do. That's what we do. Let them protect us, you know, and then we'll take all the money and put it in welfare programs and all that kind of stuff. What you should do is you should say we're going to build up our army and be strong the same way the Taiwanese do. And uh, the Finns of the Israelis. Yeah, the Finns the Israelis are a really good example where, in other words, basically you're going to send the signal that, okay, we know that you guys are bigger and more powerful than us and that you'll probably get the better of us in a fight. But it's... You're not going to have a good time. Yeah, we're like it's, a fucking it, rattlesnake. We're, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to take, you know... Step we, we, on us, ste- don't yeah. tread on me. We, 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 yeah. we, know, we know that, okay, if a if hundred of you step on us, eventually you're going you're to crush us. But we'll in the meantime, all. a lot of you guys are going to be, you know... And that's and that's something that I kind of respect. I really respect the Israelis for that. And, yeah. and I don't see how... I mean, I, like, first of all, this raises the question then of... Stephen Marsh doesn't, I don't know if he talks about this, but what exactly would, this returns to the article about the defense arrangement, right? It's Everything goes back to defense, in my view. When you're talking about countries existing, everything, because that's, I mean, what is a country if it it, it can't defend itself or seek, you know.
1: I would love to have like a, a, you know, compulsory (laughs) military service. Really? Yeah. Like they have in Singapore, Finland, Israel. I think we should have compulsory military service. And we should we can use it for other things, but for exactly the reason you're talking about, I think we, we should, should have a professional be, army for the. Record. We should it's have we yeah. should have like uh, an ability to, and I know both Swiss. of my Swiss are another yeah. example. Yeah, like I know yeah. both my 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 <laughs> daughter and my son are both. Uh, absolutely willing to, like, join such a thing and participate in it and, like, you know, are ready to drop bombs on people who try and, like, you know, (laughs) hurt us. So I think, like, yeah, I think we should have compulsory military service. And I think it has – it's nothing but, like, a benefit just so that we – you know, like, you look at, like, Finland – Russia is this beat, giant I know. And country, and the Finns won. And, it's like and, the coolest
2: story ever. The Finns like, beat the Russian army. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> numerous times, know, three know, times, yeah. right? So, it's like, wow. like,
1: and they and the Russians are like, yeah, I don't fuck with them. Like, yes, yeah. we could beat them if we want to, but man, would they it hurt would, us would, like crazy? It would take
2: so much, so many resources. We're not. It's not worth. It's it. It's not dude. worth it. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and the same thing with like with with Indonesia and Malaysia, and they, they don't want to mess with Singapore. Singapore has like this massive like. You know, conscript mm. army, like they – and I think it would be good if we did that.
2: I lived in South Korea, and South Korea does have – it's not – people think, oh, well, it's because of the Americans. You know, if, if they have a very powerful army. They have 20 – I remember when I lived there, it was 22 months of service for all um, – I believe it's probably males – um, which is a long time when you're, you know, nineteen, right? You're going to be in the army for two years. So if the North Koreans, well, they have seven years, I think. For is it? I think it's seven years for men and sixteen years for uh, something to reverse. But anyway, but I mean, if if even if the United States were to back away completely from South Korea, that would not be a given that that North Korea would would win in a war, mm-hmm. right? They have enough of a of a military, although with nuclear, I don't know how nukes could be deployed in such a contained space and not blow back on on yourself but but i again i want to return it to the canadian defense context, um, context because what exactly under this I'm, I'm trying to extrapolate this okay so we have a de facto defense agreement with the united states as far as i'm aware there's no written agreement we don't have any you know, defense agreement. The Australians have a defense agreement with the U.S. We don't. They need one because they're so far away. We don't need one because we're here. Anybody gets here, they're gonna come to it. So, what does that mean in a, a situation where the United States is splitting into these different countries? Like, what is it going to turn more inward and turn into a civil war situation? We won't have to worry about it, or is it somehow going to blow back on us and in some sort of a way? What, do, in other words, one way to ask the question would be. What were the concerns of John McDonald and all the you know the, the founders like? Exactly, what were they worried about if the United States was blowing into this war? If it were to blow into different countries, were they worried about the Northern states invading Canada? Like, do you know that? I like yes. I don't I don't know exactly. They were what worried their, about the
1: you know. Americans invading from the north and the Russians invading from the from the south and the Russians invading from the north. The Russians, yeah, but Alaska they was thought- a po- they thought, you know, okay. we're going to get invaded so, okay. in all so, directions. So
2: the theory was that Alaska would be exposed. The, the United States would not be able to defend. The Russians would come back and take it, take it over
1: again. And into Canada. And, then, and, then move and they it. also, yeah. you know, we, we forget mm, this. That's be, interesting. But, I had never thought but of that. all, but it makes all sense. parts of, like, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and New Brunswick, if you look at, like, the history of those places, a lot of those areas, like, flip-flopped from being French, English, Portuguese – uh, like lots of places, Florida, were invaded. Louisiana, did like too. they were they were yeah. flip flopping like crazy for a long time. So yeah. that would all be up for grabs, right? In that context, okay.
2: So that that makes sense. So the idea would be right. Okay. So that's interesting. So you've got, I guess, the Yukon, because yeah, the Confederation was a relatively small thing of of uh, Quebec, Ontario. It was only four. So I guess Macdonald understood that he was going to move across the continent at that point, because and so the theory was that, uh, that, that in some senses, the the growth of Canada as a as a you know tr- transcontinental uh, state is a defensive. Thing. it always you know the building of the railroad was it was a race to the west right who was who was going to get you know were we going to get there with the troops and populate it and hold it or or was it just going to be americans coming across the border basically as i understand it so the same same principle applies here i can't understand how that applies in our context like i in our in this the u.s breaking up i mean I, if the united states were to turn into an inward you know kind of flailing around as the Stephen Marsh is. I could imagine wars breaking out all over the place in other parts of the world. I mean, I, I can think of so many places where things could just devolve into... Uh, absolute...
1: Well, it's happening right now. Yeah, my places. brother's
2: really worried, speaking <laughs> about... He's, he was we were arguing about this today, because I was more into this whole thing with the truckers, and he said, oh, God, there's this thing going on in, in the Ukraine, and so we're sort of discussing which one is more important, and Um, the remain, the Ukrainian one. So is that the, is that the start of something? I don't really, you know, I mean, there's always something going on in the international sphere. I mean, Mm -hmm. but what I mean is that if the United States were to turn into what Stephen Marsh is talking about, I could imagine just kind of total chaos constantly and places like, Ukraine no longer existing although war is happening for very long periods of time I could imagine Taiwan and China fighting wars with each other and how long it would take China to take over Taiwan I don't know but it probably would be you know um, I can see all these kinds of things. The Middle East would be a total crapshoot. I, I, I would still predict that Israel would survive,
1: though. Oh, yes. Yeah, you know, because the Israelis, yeah. you know, yeah. the Israelis... I mean, yeah. the, the future is going to, I think, look much more like Israel and Singapore. So it's going to be places that have a very strong sense. And this is what Jonathan Kay was saying about Quebec. Right? Places that mm. have a strong sense yeah. of place yeah. and identity... And people that are are committed to a particular place, like places where, you know, like what Stephen Marsh was saying, like about Toronto, where everybody is one promotion away from leaving, like places like that have no future. Because if most of your population would well, move that means in a we second. We have no
2: future. I mean, if we're talking about Canada, right? I mean, so is our future an independent country? It sounds like. That, that's what you're saying and yes. maybe it is yeah maybe it is
1: i think it is um, i think like places that have a real strong sense of place like you know quebecers there's a you know a lot of quebecers who just can't imagine living anywhere else like this is their home there's a lot of texans that can't imagine living anywhere else place israel same thing places like that are fine they will have a future. Places where everybody as,
2: as long as they can you know, remain and wealthy. Says, you enough. Know,
1: John McCain John McCain yeah. talked about this. He said, You know, I am really worried about the fact that like most of the people in Phoenix um are like one promotion away from moving. And he goes, You mm-hmm. can't build a stable place mm-hmm. on people who have no commitment to the place they live, who don't really care about where they like they're they're gonna go in a second. Mm-hmm. Like that's this is like the whole rootless cosmopolitan problem, right? Like people who and this is always and you know, actually, right? Um, this is an argument that people like uh, Daniel Bell argued about the the, the cultural contradictions of capitalism, yeah. which is one of the best conservative books written in the twentieth century. You never heard of Daniel Bell. Uh yeah. Daniel Bell, he, he wrote uh Amazing, Brilliant Guy very, very important conservative capitalist thinker and stuff like that. But he said that there's cultural contradictions at the heart of capitalism. And the fact that you're always just, like, prizing people and, and systems who are willing to move wherever to find the new market and the new frontier, like, that makes a lot of money, but it ultimately ends up eating itself. It's like yeast, you know, consuming all of, like, the sugar inside a solution and eventually killing themselves. Like if you are constantly just willing to move anywhere, like you have no connection to anybody or anything that may make you a very good capitalist, but it also means you have no future whatsoever because like eventually you're going to run out of frontiers and then what are you going to do? Like you don't Mm -hmm. actually, you're, you're nothing. Like you have no connection to any tradition or any language or any place. So you run out of places to to run to to get like a cheaper labor, cheaper like resources. So what? And then you're dead. So like, what?
2: What connections do we have? If 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 I'm a proud, just to go back to the article for a second, I'm a proud Montrealer being trilingual. You're a proud bilingual Montrealer. We're both proud Quebecers. I'm assuming, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I've I've been I've been pushing back a lot on mm-hmm. this, you know, about the about the uh, defending people like Lisé. Mm-hmm. Is Canada also, is it something that also exists in that? I don't know. Um, it's like I am, I, it's something I wanted to talk to you a bit about because I know that um, you once asked me on Facebook about the, the, how we voted differently in the referendum and you wanted to explore that a little bit because um, that was, um, the, the, refer, the the referendum was a kind of defining moment in my life. It was one of these things where and i i voted no you voted yes and i believe you voted because of these you thought we would turn into sweden or something mm-hmm. like that and it turned out there were a bunch of ethno nationalists who were kind of you know hiding behind the curtain i had a very different view i it, i i could see the ethno nationalism but that was not the main thing for me it was that there are two main reasons why i've always opposed um separatism in quebec the first one i'm not proud of it's my ethnic my linguistic and ethnic background, which is anglophone, right? So I, there's a certain, there's just something built into me that I, even though, as I said before, I've got this great affinity and all this kind of stuff, it, I, I, at core, my native language. And so there's something that I think atavistically would push back against that, which I'm not proud of. I'm not proud of that, but I think it's probably true. But the other thing is, I always thought that this was 1995. I, I and this is this is true now if it can sustain itself that a larger political entity would be better generally because as a person as a liberal, classical liberal, it means more freedom to move around than one that's smaller and more freedom to you know this is coming in with all these convoys right now. I don't know if you're following this stuff, but it's I mean, these are the things that are being suppressed in the country right now. Um, we, uh, under the, 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 the charter from 1982 and the BNA act, Canadians have the right to move around the country. That's built into our constitution and it's often broken. I mean, there's the famous cases of people bringing alcohol across provincial lines that break that. And you now we've got these truckers talking about the COVID thing. So that is the reason why I, um, One of the reasons I voted voted no, although the ethno-nationalism, I could see that as well. And one final story about that that really changed my life was you talked about how the night of the referendum you were watching TV and you saw – uh, Pacquiao say that live, and it just totally you know, ripped you down. Mm-hmm. That, at that very moment, it occurred to me, because at that, that, that very moment, I was actually on my way home. It must have been. And I got a Place des Arts. My girlfriend lived uh, um, near Concordia, where I went, and I, was, and I got a Place des Arts and there were all these cops, and I said, hey, what's going on? They said, yeah, Daniel Johnson and Jean Chrétien and everything are going to give their victory speeches at Metropolis, Right and so i was like okay so I, and there was it was sort of a weird atmosphere going on so i go down i started walk down there down to st cat and along and there's this mob of people down there that i don't know if, if you know there was a huge riot that occurred that night they were outside metropolis and they were looking back, okay, back what like they were you know overturning cars and chanting and all this and and uh, uh there were helicopters that there were, there were, uh, they set a car on fire, and so there 's all this crowd jostling and then the riot cops came and this was really incredible. They all lined up. And they—I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this—but it's pretty wild. I have, and yeah, <laughs> and uh, and so they—they and they, they have this technique where they all line up, and they all they, 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 they slam their sticks mm-hmm. along the uh, along the, and they—it was boosh, 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 or whatever—I I forget the word they were using—but just like the kind of repeating all together, and then they start running and swinging their batons, and so. You know, I was up. I just happened. I I wasn't like, you know, even protesting. I just happened to be there. But you know, so there's this cop running at me, and they're swinging this baton, and and so you run or you get out of the way, or they roll right over you. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, and then, and then I started to notice these tactics as they pushed along Saint Cat, as they got to you know, there's De Bouillon or whatever the the small streets. Whenever they got to a small street, they would push past the corner and then stop, and they would get as many... You, I started to notice they were pushing as many people down the street to try and disperse the crowd. And then when we got to Barry, which is a big street and a big intersection there, there was a, it was a big crowd, and this thing happened again. And I remember it was a very terrifying thing where there was a homeless guy who was just somehow there, and he was in between... You know he was walking across the street or something, and he was i don't know maybe he was drunk or something, but he was kind of he wasn't even part of it and and the cop was like "Bouge, bouger or something like you know you know whatever he was yelling at him and then and then he started like beating on him and I remember looking at that cop, and I remember seeing his eyes, and the cop was terrified the cop- the cop who was beating the crap out of that poor guy was scared I could see not because not of that guy but just the entire situation if you're if you're a police in that kind of a situation. The crowd is bigger than you. You've got guns and you got batons, but they got ten times your numbers, right? So, and that can turn into. I mean, this was like this when I seen this stuff going on. I was a young guy, you know, in my early twenties, and I was like, "Wow, this is." And I think that that kind of I don't know. It it marked me in a certain way to see the. The power of that sense of identity for a certain segment of the population at least, how powerful it was – and we've talked about how that can be a good thing if it's like a core – but here we're seeing it – I mean I'm not so sure that was such a good – that was an animating force that was something that was really – uh, terrifying <laughs> and dangerous mm-hmm. you know and uh, and so i don 't don 't know i mean it's I, and so i've that 's marked me most of my life the The only thing that mitigates it is if Jonathan k is right and in a hundred years' time the only identity that is the only place in the country that's going to have any real sense, then, then yeah, I'm going to attach myself to that. So, okay, I'll be Same cousin. here, yeah. yeah. You know, um, and will they drive me out because I'm not ethnically one of them? I don't know. Gonna, you know I don't know. I, I don't I think I doubt so. it.
1: I really you know, doubt it. You because
2: know, that's what we were – that's what we used to worry about, right? Mm-hmm. It was always – and it's, it's not an unreasonable worry when, you know, when in some places in, you know, the Czech Republic, you know, in uh, Czechoslovakia, I should say, where uh, – you know where they did, where mm-hmm. that did. So why would it be different here? Why? I, why would you know? I don't know. I, I'm.
1: I, I think it's a, a more kind of broad minded place. But uh, I hope so. We should. We should probably end there because it's <laughs> getting late. But yeah. uh, it's what? been so much fun talking to you about this. I mean, like I don't get to talk about like you know our hometown that much. But uh, this is, you know, this is uh, fascinating because I I really do think that. Uh, we are living in very, very chaotic, strange times. And I think this is, you know, for, like I said, for a lot of very tragic and sad reasons, I think the next 10 years are going to be uh, very, very exciting for Montreal. I think property values mm. for property owners, I guess, are yeah. going to go way up. You think? I yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're already yeah. happening. And I think there's gonna be lots and lots of people flocking to Canada in general and Montreal in particular well, because of right everything that. because of everything that's going wrong. We're gonna be like one of the rafts that's floating <laughs> when everything else is underwater. And like we're going to and that's gonna be very, very exciting. It's gonna be good for us. But it's also gonna be a big challenge because We have a lot of these old, like, ethnic nationalist ideas which just are not going to work in the world to come. We're going to have to be much more kind of broad-minded, open-minded. We're going to have to be much more kind of inclusive. But we're also, as you said, we're also going to have to have a much more clear idea of who we are. Yeah. And maybe that's going to yeah. mean charter values. Maybe that's going to mean we're going to have to looking say. Looking kids in the
2: eye and saying, hey, you're one of us. How about yeah, that? You know? You're
1: <laughs> one of us. But that also means that it's not a free for all. Yeah, that's that, true. like we have yeah. way, you know, there's things that you got to do to be a part of our club.
2: I wouldn't like, want to impose that on, on on my students per se necessarily. I mean, other than doing their course with me, but I mean, not that my course is not is about something else. But just I, I, I mean, how much can we impose on some kid who's been told? Well, that the, you, know, you know,
1: I've I've I, I one of the first classes I taught when I was like just finishing up my PhD at Concordia. I had some this like really annoying group of guys who yeah, sat in the front of my class. This one class I taught at Concordia. And they would say things like, you know, openly. I think it's disgusting that there's women studying here with me at Concordia University. Really? And yeah. if you're going to be here studying with me, stop dressing like whores. And Jesus. like, and they said oh. I, had, I had to kick two guys like out of the class permanently. Is is this and a they, cultural
2: value issue? Yes. Is that, yeah. And they,
1: they were saying yeah. like they would say this stuff in the middle of the class, and they would say like. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there was a class on American history since World War II, and, like, they would say, oh, I know why the United States has problems with, like, African Americans. I'm from North Africa. I know what blacks are like. They're lazy. And they would say all these unbelievably racist, racist shit. Yeah. Right? And I just thought, okay, yeah, maybe you're not all wrong. Like, <laughs> like, like, they would say this stuff, and I'd be like, what the fuck? How do you How did you say-?
2: contain yourself from... I, I, didn't. Mean, cause I cause, Yeah, I got, like, I've had I students when got, students got, say racist like, things in my class, I've had times where I've blown up a little I bit. I blew up completely. I, you and know, know, just I because it's got, like I I just yeah. can't take racism. It's but, one of those things. But they would say stuff <laughs> yeah. like
1: this, and I thought, how did you think that you could like yeah. come to Canada and it's say shit like this? You know, like, I would never think to, like, go to, you know, to Egypt or Morocco or Stop going to the mosque or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I I would never in a million years think of going to, like, one of those countries and saying shit like that. But these guys thought it was completely fine in the front of the entire class to say women shouldn't be studying here. I know why black people. Like, really racist, sexist stuff. So, yes, I think people are going to be moving here, like, crazy as climate refugees and escaping all these problems but we are going to have to have like some sort of clear idea of like okay this is how we do things here yeah like yeah. you can't like no we we actually do we're not like like a trudeau anything goes like like no you actually we actually do have like rules of the game um, I
2: cover these in my culture and language class. I cover a lot of things about just the the you know um, I go back into slavery and then the anti slavery movement cropped up in the UK and then it brought to the United States and it spread around the world. And it's an idea. It's just an I. You mentioned earlier how it was this stubborn. It, it wasn't a stubborn idea that started out on a Pacific Island. Right? And that's all due respect to Pacific Islanders or, you know, just that it did happen from this certain cultural context. And it has a simple principle that a human being has a right not to be the property of another human being, that a human being has in, inherent you know, rights, no matter who that person is. And, there seems to be something to do with the Western Enlightenment, and it's not clear whether it's connected to Christianity. We don't know. The Magna Carta was an early thing that sometimes I've mentioned in my classes because that's a thousand-year-old document that was done in England that is a precursor to that as well. You know, How much do we have to teach this? How much do we have to impose it? How much can we allow people to do what they want to do? Because part of the core, it's, it, again, you get this weird contradiction you ha- If if you say we believe in freedom, which is individual freedom, then that has to allow for some people to go off and live in a community where maybe they're, they have, I don't know, misogyny or something, right? I mean, like, how much are we going to impose on – we have ethnic communities here in Montreal who live in you know, almost like contained – you know, like Hasidic Jews, just for a, a simple example. They don't impose that on others. That's a distinct difference, right? They don't – They live in their, their community and they have their own things, but their practices are radically different from how our values might be, let's say, maybe, right? I'm Mm -hmm. not sure I know that much about the Hasids, but so we don't force them. We don't tell them, Hey, you know, you have to right be like us. So it's, it's a very, very difficult problem because Mm -hmm. in theory we, because you know, the uh, Muslims could say the same thing under the, right. They could say, well, we just want to have. Our, you know, our community, you know, like those students that you had, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're imposing that on your class, so you can kick them out of your class. But then, at, you know, at what point? Like, it's really, really a complicated problem of knowing when you can intervene and tell somebody, "Hey, that's not correct here." Right? It's just really, really hard to do without. At some point, it's spilling over and and suppressing some person's freedom to do what they want to do. Right. You know, I mean, just to give us an interest, sort of a strange example, but I was reading my MP in Verdun, David, I forget his name anyway, and I was reading this thing and it said, we've, you know, it said this proud thing, the Truder government has made conversion therapy illegal. Right. And, uh, and so at first I didn't really understand what conversion therapy was. So I had, to, I thought maybe it was like, if someone's going to convert their gender physically using um, you know, hormones, and so I thought, well, if um, if, if someone, if a person's under 18 and they're going through that, maybe making that illegal would make some kind of sense, but it turns out that it means these religious wackos who, if they have a gay son or something like that, they say, oh, you have to come to church and we're going to teach you to like girls and have sex with women and all this, which I think is, personally, I think that's kind of a reprehensible thing to do. Should the government be creating a law for people not to do that? That strikes me as strange, and it also strikes me as how do you administer that? I mean, how do you, like, I'm just—I don't even. Maybe someone can tell me this who's listening to this. How that law is going to work? Is are they going to go around to churches and kind of watch for this going on, and uh, you know, and then are they going to arrest the priest for doing it? I, I, is that? I don't know. I just—it's—it's. You see, I mean, that's a very small thing that where they could be somehow intervening in. Right? Mm-hmm. And then you think, hey, is, is that – and maybe that, should they be doing it? Maybe it is some sort of travesty. Is there an age of consent that could solve it? I, I, I don't know if you yeah. would know anything I about I don't
1: know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's sort of like, like, like banning electrode shock therapy or something like that. But uh, yeah. it's anyway. like a pretty yeah. dark stuff. But anyway, yeah. this has been absolutely fascinating. <laughs> right. Thank you so much for coming on the we podcast We talked a little again. bit about the article. And we, yeah. uh, we will have to like – you know, but I mean, part of the reason that you know Montreal has such a bright future is because Montrealers are just such fascinating people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, thank and you, John. I will always uh, a pleasure. We'll see ya. Yeah, see you again. Yeah. All right, take care. Bye for now.
0: See ya. Whoa.